Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. In this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality, and I think the reporting here has been pretty straightforward over the last five to six weeks. Prior to that, when there wasn't testing in January and February, that's a very different situation um, and unknown. 
there are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus called you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem, some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. The Centers for Disease Control have updated their death counts for coronavirus and reveal yet again that COVID-19 is rarely the actual cause of death among coronavirus patients. According to the CDC themselves, of the 220,000 deaths attributed to the coronavirus, 87,000 of them died from pneumonia and influenza. Another 17,000 died from chronic respiratory diseases and 26,000 died from respiratory distress syndrome. 44,000 patients died from hypertensive diseases, 23,000 died from heart disease, and a whopping 28,000 died from cardiac arrest and heart failure. Yet all of these, even patients who died from heart attacks, were marked down as dying from the coronavirus. Doctors who spoke with One American News explained that 131,000 patients who are being considered COVID-19 deaths already had life-ending diseases, including cancer, dementia, and even end-stage renal failure. And according to the CDC, again, if you look at place of death, you'll see that some 10,000 patients who died from COVID were on hospice care, meaning they were terminally ill to begin with and were already expected to die. Doctors tell One America News that all of these patients were critically ill and likely died from their pre-existing conditions without any help from the coronavirus. However, they explain that the CARES Act, passed by Congress in March, gives hospitals a 20% bonus on their diagnosis-related group paid for by Medicare. Essentially, that means doctors are being paid to list deaths as coronavirus without any indication the patient's death was actually COVID-related. The CDC backs these numbers up, explaining that coronavirus itself is responsible for just 6% of all deaths listed as coronavirus-related. The other 94% of deaths are due to pre-existing comorbidities, including serious illnesses and advanced age. However, despite this report being officially published by the CDC, so far the mainstream media have completely ignored it, instead continuing to hype a pandemic that seems less dangerous every day. Dr. Kerry Mullis was awarded the Nobel Prize for his invention of the polymers chain reaction, the PCR. The PCR is a method of analysis and wasn't designed to test for a virus. Mullis explains why. And with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to, a, to something that you can really measure, which BCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. The PCR test can potentially find anything you are looking for, depending on how high you turn it up. And this is exactly what has been done. 
The official protocol given for the PCR testing of COVID-19 created a floodgate of false positives to skew the results. They call it asymptomatic because it's a lie. These people don't have symptoms because they don't have COVID-19. They do it today because they've done it in the past and always gotten away with it. 30 years ago, Anthony Fauci, head of the NIH, made a name for himself by pushing for higher doses of the deadly drug AZT, an old cancer chemotherapy too dangerous for approval, onto AIDS patients. Kerry Mullis was hired to measure HIV in people's blood samples with his PCR. He was working under the premise that HIV was the probable cause of AIDS. But when he went looking for the proof, he found there was none. They just made it up. What is that paper? Who do I go to for that? And I looked around, I asked a couple of virologists at that company, and they said, no, you don't have to reference I said, I have to reference that because I, I don't know where that came from. How do I know that? And it turned out that nobody knew it. And I was getting really freaked about that. That's when I first started saying, they don't know. Nobody really knows. This whole thing is a big sham. Mullis pointed out how the CDC was losing money and how the HIV-AIDS connection brought their profits back in the black and how the men at the highest levels were all in on it. Kerry Mullis knew these men were dangerous. They don't want people like me walking up and asking them those kind of questions. And they're willing to like go to great lengths to prevent that. They're out on a limb. I wouldn't want to be there with them. But he was still outspoken. When ABC's Nightline approached him about doing a documentary on his work, Mullis convinced them to cover the HIV debate after nearly a decade of ignoring it. In a 1994 interview with Celia Farber for Spin Magazine, Kerry Mullis expressed how he really wanted to expose Anthony Fauci and Robert Gallo. He said that he'd be willing to chase the little bastard from his car to his office, a Nobel Prize winner trying to ask a simple question from those who spent $22 billion and killed 100,000 people. It has to be on TV. I'm not unwilling to do something like that. Unfortunately, not many people were listening back then. And on August 7th, 2019, just about three months before the first utterance of COVID-19, Kerry Mullis, age 74, a Nobel Prize winner, inventor of the PCR test, a man who was once willing and eager to expose Anthony Fauci, quietly died of pneumonia. The timing of it all is mysterious to many of us. From Peter Datsik and and uh, Anthony Fauci and all, and all these people that were involved in the funding of this research, mm-hmm. just the way they were framing it and the way they were disparaging legitimate scientists and legitimate doctors that were not lockstep in, in agreement with them, it's fucking shameful. Yeah. It's not scientific. Shameful as it's in people political. need to be in prison, it's, maybe? They, Fuck yeah! Yeah, and not only that, they they, they should it's, this should be a thing. Like Rand Paul's the only one who calls him out on it. Yeah, and he does it on a regular basis, and he's a hundred percent correct yeah. in the things that he's saying about the funding of this he's been particular type star. of research. Because when you see Fauci say that it's not gain of function research. But that's not true because the NIH says it's gain of function yeah. research. They all say yeah. it now because they they want to protect their own ass. This is a rumor online, and and I'm going to ask you a bunch of. Okay, so is Dr. Fauci's wife 
on the NIH? Isn't she like one of the heads? Isn't that some sort of thing? Well, let's find out. Yeah, she does something. She she has some function. And he used to be the head of the NIH during that whole AIDS yes. thing. Which He's been we're not running it. Making He's... any comparisons to, if you make any comparisons Here to it is. him. She's the head of the Department of Bioethics. It's a National Institute of Health Clinical Center. Yes, there it is. Do you think maybe this is well? It's it's fucking. Problem? <laughs> it's all it's all crazy because these people are they have massive amounts of power to decide who gets funded, what labs get funded, and no one wants to step out of line. Mm -hmm. There's a crazy fucking book that I'm in the middle of. That's a very controversial book, and it was one of those books. I'm like, God, do I want to get into this? Robert <laughs> Kennedy like Jr. Oh, yeah. Yes. Robert Kennedy Jr.'s right. book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Holy fucking yeah. shit. Yeah. Like, there's some stuff in that that is 100% verifiable truth. Yeah. And it's crazy. Now, I want to bring you on this, on this note. I want to bring you because we've been speaking for an hour. It felt like it flew by. We've been speaking for an hour. Thank you for your time. Yeah. I want to bring you to the meat yeah. of the subject because this is really where you uh, deserve to be heard and, and have been stigmatized and sidelined. 17 years at Pfizer, yeah. head chief scientist globally on respiratory, respiratory illnesses. Respiratory illnesses was your expertise yes. at Pfizer and you're their chief scientist globally on yes. that topic. You're saying that it was obvious to you from your background experience, yes. academic qualifications, expertise, it was obvious to you that these vaccines didn't work and won't work and do not work. Now, what I'd like you to do is give you the stage now, because this is really, I think, probably why our audience would tune into you because of your, of your Pfizer background. Pfizer data is being released as we speak, and only because a, a court ordered them to release this data. They tried to hold it back for 75 years. What we have found is that there were 1,200 deaths within the first three months of their trials. They tried to withhold that information from the public. A judge had to order that to be uh, released. You're going beyond the side effects. You're saying, yes, side effects are bad, but you're saying the damn thing doesn't work in the first place. So yeah. stage is yours, uh, Mark. Yeah, Tell us certainly. why you say Well, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus on um, what I call design errors. Did, 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 I remember I talked about mechanisms of toxicity and then my decades of drug discovery experience where you would work with what we call a medicinal chemist to try and design molecules that would interact with the target to bring about a benefit to a patient as a medicine and not bring about toxic side effects. And remember, I had this training in mechanistic toxicity. So you're always trying to, uh, in fact, it was said a long time ago that the dose makes the poison. Almost everything, we knew from ancient Greeks that uh, you know, things that you could derive from plants, if you used them in, in the right dose, could produce you know, benefits, relieving pain, making helping people sleep, removing inflammation. But if you had the wrong dose, it could poison you. Same thing. And so it's a matter of getting the right amount of, of interaction with the target to help you and, and not interacting with a target that will hurt you. So I know a lot about drug design mechanisms of toxicity. So I'm just going to point out a few things that I think people will get the aha, but this was obvious to me. So if you want to design a vaccine, um, then and you're going to do it, I wouldn't do it in this way at all. There are, there are no gene-based vaccines on the market for very good reasons, uh, and that's one of the problems. But let's say you could like pull it, pull it apart, you could pull the spike off, you could pull the, the ball in the middle of this virus. Which bit would you give to people? Well, you don't need to answer it, but what you would do is ask, what's the toxicity of the bit I'm going to give to a person? 
So if I told you that the spike protein, like a floating landmine, a sea mine in the sea with the spike sticking out, if I told you that we've known for more than a decade that the spike bits from related viruses had unwanted biology that could cause blood to coagulate, that could activate platelets and make blood clot, that's true. If you knew those things, you'd think, well, probably a bad idea then to give them the spike to train on. Let's give them the nucleo, let's give them the coating around the nucleus or something, or the capsid, you know, the cap on the end of the protein. So they, the fact that they chose spike protein, a gene for spike protein, make your body become a manufacturing center briefly to make that virus spike protein. That was the first mistake. Because yeah, you're, you're, they, you're saying we've known for, for years oh, yeah. that spike protein causes blood clots. Yeah. Which, by the way, now that's out there, right? So we know that yes. um, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Moderna, yes. uh, AstraZeneca in particular, now Britain you, under 40, now you get why I was so, blood clots. Now you can get why I was so frantic in December 2020. I remember. A, with a public I was trying to get doctor. you on my previous gig, my yeah. previous show, and then we'll push back. People thought you were a conspiracy Exactly. Theory. So with, well, there was a public health doctor that is a public health doctor in Germany, Dr. Wolfgang Vodarg. You might want to try yeah. and interview him. W-O-D-A-R-G. Uh, and he right. was public health doctor and uh, a, a politician during the swine flu pandemic in 2009. And some some very similar things that happened in COVID were happening in 2009. It's a very interesting experience. Uh, he and I think 2009 was the final dress rehearsal for COVID. Mm. They they misused PCR. They overdiagnosed cases. They twisted the arms of governments all around the world to pay for billions of dollars worth of uh, vaccines and not very good antivirals. And then they all ran off. Uh, and Vodard was the one that managed to point out in the second season that it was a false positive pseudo epidemic. It was all bad PCR testing. And as soon as they fixed the PCR, it all went away. All went away. So, so you're saying we knew this spike protein would cause blood clots. You're yeah. trying to raise the alarm. Yeah. Uh, pe- people aren't listening. Nevertheless, they roll out these vaccines they that did. focus on. So, that, so on that, was the, spike that was the first mistake. That so they, right. I, I mean, they may have had a good counter argument, but no one's contacted me to say I wish you wouldn't keep bad mouthing them. Here was the good reason. Here was the rational reason why, despite these concerns, we picked spike protein. Maybe it's the most immunogenic part, the bit that makes your immune system wake up. Okay, let's hear that counter argument. I haven't heard it. And by the way, the human body makes its best immune responses after infection to bits other than the spike protein. About 90% of the immune response to this COVID are to bits of the virus that are not the spike protein. So so I think I am right that that was not the best bit to give because it's not the thing your body likes to respond to it and there's another there's a, there's a reason so the first thing is you don't give you don't give um as the vaccine something that's toxic in its own right because you're going to get side effects there's obviously a lot of uh, controversy at the end of last week between your administration and the white house what do you make of the white house saying that the state reversed on child vaccine so the white house is lying about it we are <laughs> surprised not surprised the White House would lie. Definitely not surprised that legacy media would amplify the lie because that's what they do. The state of Florida, they came out with an article saying the state of Florida has not ordered, its Department of Health has not ordered mRNA jabs for the babies. Yes, we didn't. We recommend against it. We are not going to have any programs where we're trying to jab six-month-old babies with mRNA. That's just the reality. 
And I think what happened was they thought somehow we would we would like be be embarrassed by that. No, we're following the data. You look at these European countries, uh, they are. Uh, a lot of them don't even allow Moderna for under age 30, or they recommend against it. So that was always that. We still have not ordered it. We're not going to order it. Now, what they're saying is because practitioners and hospitals can order it, somehow we've reversed. I, I said from the beginning they'll be able to do that. We don't have the authority to prevent it. And quite frankly, if someone wants to make a different decision, I would just caution people, look at the actual data in the clinical trial. It is the weakest possible data that you could possibly uh, see. Very small number of people. Uh, what the recommendation is from them doesn't even track the outcomes. It was something that, but, but people can ask their pediatricians. They can ask their doctors. What's the evidence of, of, of protection against severe disease? There was none in the clinical trial. Uh, but, but that's something that people would do. But for us, Joe Latipo, our Department of Health has looked at it. There is no proven benefit to put a, a baby with an MRA. So that's why our recommendation is against it. That's different than prohibiting the use in Florida, which we don't have the, the authority to do. And quite frankly, you know, we're, we're confident people can make their own judgments on it. But I would say when you look at the trial, one of the things they did, they did not have uh, babies or very young kids who had recovered from COVID in the trial. So we don't know what this will do for people that have recovered. But in their recommendation, they are recommending giving the mRNA shot to people, young babies and kids that have already recovered from COVID. They don't have any clinical data on that. And people have looked at some of this stuff and have recognized how that, and you know what? The White House is bragging that we're the only country that is trying to do mRNA shots for infants. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with, with, with being, being the lone ranger if you're right. But the, the other countries in Europe that are going a different direction, similar to the direction Florida's gone, they have been right on COVID way more than Fauci and his crew have been throughout this whole thing. Remember, these are people in Washington that rejected the idea of natural immunity. Uh, for a year and a half, they said that the vaccine was better than prior infection in every credible study that's been done has said that that's not the case. And so they've been wrong time and time again. They were wrong when they criticized me for having schools open. They wanted our kids locked out of school in the state of Florida. They were wrong when they criticized me for having businesses open, beaches, all these other things. And so this is an example where they are pushing this with very, very, very scant data. But again, People can make their judgments, but but ask questions. And the fact of the matter is, I think what this whole uh, year and a half has shown us is these regulatory agencies in the federal government have basically become uh, subsidiaries of the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they are not independent regulators. Uh, they basically are there to rubber stamp uh, what Pfizer wants to do. So people can people can make their judgments on it, but we have not ordered any uh, for the Department of Health. There's been absolutely zero change in our recommendations. And the recommendations, remember, we were the first state to recommend against 6 to 11-year-olds. We never had any state programs for any of that. There have been some practitioners that have ordered it, and some have gotten it. Most, most parents are not giving it uh, for, the, for the kids with the MNRA, but some, some did, and I think it's the same thing. So this is a continuation uh, of our policy that we've had in place really since the spring.
back. This is Tyler Bloyer with Freedoms Rising. Today you are in the BioSci War Part 1, the BioSci War Barrage. This is Freedoms Rising Episode 27 here on July 18th, 2022. The show is hosted again by myself, Tyler Bloyer, on the website tylerbloyer.com is where you can find the archives. And as well as freedomsrising.live for the Freedoms Rising series. At the moment and in the future, we'll be probably flying under this Freedoms Rising flag. And it's a concept, it's a philosophy, it's a worldview, the white-pilled optimism that there is a chance for freedom and that freedom will win in the end. And that it's up to us to help that and participate that and facilitate that freedoms rising. And so it's not a guaranteed thing. It is a choice for humanity to choose freedom over tyranny, to choose freedom over the worldwide corporate cabal, the corporate fascist cabal of techno-communism that we are unfolding into that we are rapidly approaching and living in the middle of the Great Reset and the pandemics that brought it about. And you will see in the past that COVID-19 was really the trigger point that brought about the Great Reset, that brought about the Agenda 20, 20, 20, 30 plans, Agenda 21, uh, the the greening movements, the global uh the uh, environmental programs, not saying that I'm an anti-environmentalist, but these programs have been used as Trojan horses to bring about uh, the philosophy of something like or exactly like or akin to the New World Order philosophy. And the stakeholders are gathering up all the stake and leaving bugs, the bugs to eat for you as as they penetrate all the cabinets. Oh, that's funny. I, that thing. I was going to, okay. Soundboard not working right now. It was, I reached down to press it and the soundboard blipped into something else. Not sure what happened there. But yes, today we'll be getting back into the bio-sci war. And oh, there we go. Okay, now I have the... Penetrates the cabinets. So if we penetrate okay. the cabinets... We're a little late on the soundboard there, but... <laughs> okay, now what you heard, what we're going to be doing with the barrage, a barrage, of course, being a concentrated artillery bombardment over a wide area, if you just do like a basic di- dictionary definition. But the barrage that we'll be doing is not only are we being barraged by artillery uh, in the form of the Psy War and the Bio-Psy War, an actual physical war, an assault that we were under, that we are under with this uh, COVID-19 and now the vaccines being deployed, these mRNA, highly experimental, dangerous gene therapy drugs with the spike protein, as you heard. Uh, Michael Yeadon, the former Pfizer uh, high-up official in the Pfizer company who stepped down and has been since, you know, completely lambasted over his opinions and called a conspiracy theorist and told that he's absolutely insane for just bringing up the things that like you heard him talk about there in the opening clip. 
But we also opened up with Dr. Deborah Burks with her uh, with the recollection there, something we need to bring back up into the BioSci War about how the COVID-19 deaths were really skewed and miscounted and counted. They counted things that were not necessarily caused by COVID-19 as a death and counted those as deaths to pad the numbers as well as the way the PCR test was used and a high amount of cycles and the threshold that was used there was an amount that Kerry Mullis himself would have said, well, you can really see anything with running the tests in this way. And so you can create anything that you want to create, any numbers that you want to create using the PCR tests in the way that we've been using them. And that is the inventor of the PCR who did pass before the COVID-19 pandemic really kicked off. Uh, luckily or coincidentally enough for the people that would then be wanting to use the PCR test in the way that it was used and the way that it's still being used to identify people as you know, being infected with COVID-19. And we also heard, again, the a clip there. Well, we heard then a Joe Rogan clip with a guest that he had on the show. Sorry, I'm trying to pull this up. And what we heard there was the guest he had was Gina Carano on episode 1837 of the Joe Rogan podcast. I've actually gone and hunted down a larger section of that because sometimes these clips that go around showing, oh, see what somebody said are used in two ways. The people that are already sort of bought in on, you know, the cover up and wanting to slander the information are saying, oh, see, here's more Joe, Joe Rogan's bullshit and more of his slandering. And he's a racist for using the word shameful. I was reading some articles like Joe Rogan forced to apologize after using the word shameful instead of like looking at what he's talking about as shameful is Fauci's cover up of the funding of EcoHealth Alliance of Metobiota of these bioweapons defense labs, which is really, you know, dual use and can be defensive or offensive as we've covered in the BioSci war quite heavily that something being called the Department of Defense is, you know, it was at one point called the Department of Offense. And it's really both. I mean, you can't just uh, study the gain of function of of viruses and then only, you know, say that you're only studying that for defensive purposes when you're creating a weapon. You're creating a weapon and like, oh, it's just for defense. Yeah, that can be the way you wrote down as your reasoning, but doesn't mean that that's you know, in reality, the only use of what you're studying could be offensive as well. And we're going to get into a longer clip of that, as well as the uh, Michael Yeadon clip that where he was interviewed. And that was a recent interview that came out with him. That interview was conducted by Majid Nawaz on his show Radical. I... Uh, came across this interview actually from a listener of the Grand Theft World podcast and I believe this podcast who I've been following the links that uh, she drops at the She Who Remembers 002 handle in the discords um, who drops a lot of good clips and has uh, one of the early adopters of joining in on the discord server and Freedom's Rising, who's basically a, a barren landscape with not many people there, but the TylerBloyer.com Discord is where I'd invite people to join in and drop those links and help participate as we will include 
clips that we come across from the BioSci War into the show. Uh, let's see, what else did we cover in the front there? We covered a report um, from CDC numbers being, you know, skewed and how they're, they were miscounting things. We covered that from a news report just as part of the BioSci War and included that in the intro. And uh, also a, the opening song there, of course, from Natalie Rise. Uh, Natalie Rise gets all the credit, and we'll put a link to that song in the show notes. Just making a note here to make sure and do that, to give credit where credit's due. And just to sort of to kick off the new series of the BioSci War, I'm not going to be opening up every so- every part of this series with a full song, so you can relax if you didn't like that. Uh, but if you were wondering, where's the host of this show? Where's Tyler? Where's the navigator? Where's the person that's guiding us through these clips? We wanted to leave it out there for a little bit for you to start, you know, navigating that information yourself and being able to hear and think on your feet and not necessarily react, but just take in the information and don't draw a conclusion. Try to follow up on the sources and the resources that are provided here in the BioSci War, which we'll be covering as well here in a little bit. And, you know, it went on for 20 minutes there, opening up with just clips from the barrage. We're going to be doing that in the BioSci War barrage, covering mainly work that we've been missing over the last year since we've taken off. And I haven't done any publications from the BioSci War since June of 2021. And there's been a lot that's happened since then. There's been a lot that we haven't been able to cover. And we that's what our goal is here, is to be able to help people understand the war that we're in, the biological psi war, and the origins of it, the origins of psychological warfare, the origins of biological warfare, military operations in general, and the way that they're conducted on the population, and how, you know, there's there's a lot of red tape that you might think would be there that really isn't there, that you know, you're not treated as someone with rights and a and constitution that protects those rights and uh, who has the uh, right to not be harmed in their body and and remain in bodily autonomy, that that's not how you're viewed by the people that carry out these operations. And you're just cattle to be controlled and a narrative to be uh, provided to control what you think and how you think. And so we've got to break that down. We've got to uncover what's happening in the BioSci War and some of the dangers of these uh, so-called vaccines, which is really not traditional vaccines. I mean, they're like changing the language around. It's a gene therapy. Uh, The Moderna and Pfizer and anyone utilizing this mRNA technology to create the spike protein and spread it all around the body to attempt to create an immunity response. I mean, I don't necessarily think that these people even understand, like that even Mike Eden is using all these terms like immune response and things to these spike proteins. And I don't, I don't think, I think that's trying to use classical vaccine understanding and how vaccines would promote health in the body by triggering the immune response and then causing it to have immunity to future, you know, future incidents where the body might come across that now it has an antibody or a a way to respond to that with the immune system. A, I don't even know if traditionally that has ever been all that effective. 
And then B, I don't think that we can apply that to what these mRNA vaccinations are doing and call it the same thing. Like it's all just in the vaccine realm. These are gene therapy drugs, which uh, go in and reprogram the RNA and potentially even are reprogramming people's DNA and, you know, doing things to the body that we don't even understand. And so the last clip we played in the montage there was from Governor Ron DeSantis of the Florida uh, governor, who's the 46th governor of Florida since 2019. And I'm definitely not playing partisan politics by having him up there. I just think it was interesting after Yeadon was talking about the dangers of the spike protein, you know, hearing Ron's stance is not the traditional mainstream stance on how people view these uh, being rolled out to children. And I think we need to really, really, really think twice before we start to inject little children with these highly experimental uh, gene therapy drugs. And so that's also why we're doing the BioSci War again, and why here on Freedoms Rising, we've decided to take it to the front lines and go back to the BioSci War in the BioSci War barrage, because it has to do with Freedoms Rising. And part of the coverage is to recap the BioSci War and be a repeater of the information to get it out there to a wider audience to at least encapsulate and document and uh, be able to put these things in capsules for long-term future listeners to be able to go back and pick up these archives and dive into the research in a way that's, you know, more suitable for someone who's not, you know, way out in front of where I'm at. And so what, who am I, what am I doing? Well, I consider myself a repeater of this information, someone who compiles, uh, consolidates, and you could look at it as as like a step-up transformer or perhaps even a step-down transformer, like taking all the information that's overwhelming and dispersed and, you know, scary and even just hard to find, hard to review. Maybe we don't have the time to go over all the information. So then taking all that high amount of energy and then stepping it down into an audio format podcast that people can just listen to while they're doing their thing, while they're, you know, out mowing the lawn, while they're uh, checking at the grocery store. Usually when you're like grocery shopping, driving, doing chores, mowing lawns, it's hard to actually read books and sit down and read long articles and link things together and perform the research. So I don't do that 24-7-365 because I get burnt out too. I get to the point where I can't, you know, handle that load of energy and I need a little break. But I do consider myself someone who has the ability to weave the narrative, to paint the picture, not drawing things together that don't go together, but seeing things in a way that's uh, a little bit more holistic and... uh, not necessarily your mainstream narrative. And then being able to purvey that information to other people has been the skill set that I'm trying to build with doing content production, with being able to put out the work. Uh, If you go back to the beginning of the work that I've done, it's always been exactly what I just said. I'm attempting to take the amount of information that's out there that might be overwhelming with certain topics that I feel are important And what other important information could we be covering on Freedoms Rising than the ongoing BioSci War and 
this isn't over. I mean, they're not done rolling out their agendas and they're not done trying to get us to comply with the new measures that are being, you know, shoved and forced into our lives, essentially. And if we don't understand and we're not able to sit back and think critically about things and assess the landscape and take in information that we should be taking in as responsible adults before we make decisions for the future, for our family, for children that we're responsible for, we need to have a bigger picture. We need to have more of the information, more of the puzzle put together. And so uh, in the series of the BioSci War Barrage, we are going to be you know, just dropping the information down. We're going to be putting it out there, not necessarily injecting, you know, my, you know, stretching and reaching for the big picture of what it really is and see here and making leaps in, in our judgment and, and our logic, but just taking in the information, taking it down, putting it down in the tracks, putting it out there so we can all understand better about how we got here, about what we're doing here in the bio war. So why me? Again, I, I feel I can just be a good discoverer, a compiler, and a mixer of this information. And I will be bothered as a, I think it was Roger Waters. And if you go to the Live at Pompeii series, uh, the live album was recorded and they put in these like little film clips almost in between the songs. And he's talking about his equipment and he's like, and he's like, a lot of people won't be bothered looking and tink- tinkering around with their equipment, but we will be bothered. We we are, and that always <laughs> it reminds me. It sounds a little weird, but it reminds me of myself in a way. Like I will be bothered. I will decide to take the time out of my day, take the time out of my life to do this work, to use the tools that I have available to me that are here in my office that are waiting for me to sit down and put my hands on the tools and use them. And use them in a way that I feel like is going to help, again, help people see the bigger picture so we can, you know, make proper decisions and have more people exploring and discovering these things so that we don't just get hit hit with the overwhelming tsunami of people just believing what the legacy media, the mainstream media tells them. That just go along with the group think, that just find themselves going along to get along, don't want to rock the boat. Um, and then end up getting caught in very nefarious agendas, very nefarious plots, and making decisions that are harmful for freedom, harmful for the future, and end up not being for the greater good, which is what most people would say that they're doing with their behavior by believing the the science and believing the experts and not wanting to rock the boat and not wanting to go against what people are being said. That And I've had conversations with people in my immediate circle of influence, let's say, who really back when I first started doing the Bio Cywar series, that was the it was the same thing that motivated me to do the Bio Cywar series back then was I could see this massive gap and this massive chasm between people that could, you know, read different information as it was coming out, who could look into uh something like you know, Anthony Fauci's uh, NIH and NIAID funding of EcoHealth Alliance and the gain-of-function research, and that they would, they were, the, uh, Peter Daszak and his co- cover-up using the Lancet to try to cover up the fact that there, that there had nothing to do with gain-of-function. It just came from nature, and we didn't need to look into that at all, right? 
and seeing that as a giant red flag and then looking at DARPA and the Pentagon and the funding of uh, these things in the past and the Project for a New American Century's mention of using a biological agent as a convenient weapon for them in the future. Uh, let's let's go ahead and I had that uh, quote ready to go here. It says, this is, if you remember the the project for a new American century, sort of the neocon group, uh, uh, serving the administration of George Bush, including, you know, Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, uh, the good old boy crew there who, you know, saw over a lot of what was uh, happening around that time, and uh, what other major American events did we see happen around that time? Well, th- these guys uh, s- supposedly ceased to function around 2006, uh, but uh, we could see that, you know, the the influence has lasted since then, and the things that they did. But the the point is, is the article I wanted to bring up um, is from. Uh, something in published in 2000 and it's called rebuilding america's defenses strategy forces and resources for a new century a report of the project for the new american century from september of 2000 and on page 60 of that it's like this giant pamphlet of like solutions uh it says I'll just read the section. Control of the sea could be largely determined by non-fleets of surface combatants and aircraft carriers, but from land and space-based systems forcing uh, navies to maneuver and fight underwater space itself will become a theater of war as nations gain access to space capabilities and come to rely on them. Further, the distinction between military and commercial space systems Combatants and non-combatants will become blurred. Information systems will become as important focus of attack, particularly for U.S. enemies seeking to short-circuit sophisticated American forces. And advanced forms of biological warfare that can, quote, target, unquote, specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. I'll just read that again, that last part. And advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. So this think tank, this steering committee uh, back in the year 2000 saw that biological weapons essentially could be used to target certain genotypes, to certain target certain races. You know, is, is that what that's saying? <laughs> you guys understand the implications of that and using the uh, using that as a useful tool. So that's one thing we covered heavily in the BioSci War, and we're gonna have in as a po- part of the posts and publications on the website you can see I'll have resources from that particular episode posted and then also the links to all the biosci war episodes that we've done that you can see as posted in their order but also a large 
See Also section, and that See Also section contains important documents and resources that I feel like are good supplementals to understanding the BioSci War, and you know that way they're posted there and put into the record so that people can easily access those, and as well as myself finding these as useful when I'm you know taken time away from putting out work on the BioSci War, I was able to pull them up and get a good review myself of some of the things that we've covered. Uh, I feel like one of the researchers at this point that we really need to point to is Dave Emery from the SpitfireList.com and his archives there and the work that he's done over the decades has been tremendous on uncovering fascism, uncovering uh, the neo-Nazi movement, uncovering the modern Nazis of today, and really relying on source materials and putting information out there in a very, you know, it definitely has a Dave Emery slant to it, but he also puts out work in an objective way that points to the source materials and keeps it to the to the documents and uses uh, really solid resources and resources that are, uh, you know, you could say trustworthy, but um, that are not just whatever he's putting together. They're, they're sourced materials and sourced information that he puts out there. Of course, for the record, uh, 1,119 and 1,120 DARPA and the COVID-19 outbreaks. I think this is critical information to understand. And we've also, again, done a repeater and amplification on that information in the BioSci War and attempted to help, you know, people understand more about that. And we covered as well you know, focusing on Dave's work for a minute. He's also continuing to do the work and put out information that we'll be featuring in upcoming episodes either this week or next week on the BioSci War. But he's done a a recent series called Pandemics, Inc., and also including the Ukraine War Meets the Oswald Institute of Virology and a series, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lies, and... All of these works are really, you know, pointing to and also, again, highlighting information that we can then go find ourselves and, you know, go through that information and use someone like Dave Emery as a tremendous resource to help. And so uh, here at the BioSci War, Tyler Bloyer, myself, I'm just a student, a discoverer, a compiler, and someone on a journey myself. So... I'm not claiming, hey, I've got all the information. I'm about to give you it over this long series. I'm really sort of kind of going into the hole and digging out, digging out the trenches, digging out the rabbit holes, going in and exploring. And then, you know, the real experts at that point can come in and assess and we can do a review and we can go back and make sure that we're consistent and try to point out major mistakes or major issues with any work that we put out there. But again, I'm also on a journey with you on this discovery as well in the BioSci War. Uh, but we did, you know, cover in the past uh, the Guardian, articles from the Guardian called The Synthetic Biology Raises a New Bioweapon, Raises Risks of New Bioweapons. And that article was posted in June of 2018. And they were talking about, uh, you know, synthetic biology and, uh, the Department of Defense's interest in these things, as well as uh, how people will use uh, novel bioweapons as a reason to conduct more disease surveillance and bolster defenses, 
And, you know, this was, this has been nothing new here going on, folks, of what's been going on. And also we covered articles from researchgate.net covering the synthetic recombination of bat SARS-like coronavirus and how these infectious uh, diseases were cultured in cell and my- cells in and in mice. <laughs> cells and in mice uh, is what it says. Uh, there's that article that we have in the Seymour resources. It's a study. Synthetic recombinant bat SARS-like coronaviruses is infectious in cultured cells and in mice. Yeah, you can find that resource available there. We also covered the U.S. officials revisit rules for disclosing risky disease experiments. And going into the moratorium moratorium that was put on 2014 under Obama and then brought uh review or uh broken in 2017 and the NIH lifted the ban of funding of gain of function research in December of 2017 after the HHS and the White House developed a system for vetting proposed experiments creating the expert panel in the process so at one point, they had decided that this sort of research was so dangerous that they should stop doing it. And then, for some reason, in, in 2017, they decided that, no, it was worth doing, and they should continue to do that research, and lifted that uh, ban on doing that sort of research. What a, what a great idea, you know? What a wonderful world that we live in. Um, we've covered, in the past, also Fort Dietrich, Fort Dietrich Lab being shut down several times, different times uh, for safety inspections and all research halted indefinitely uh, even as far as up and including into August of 2019 where the USAMRID uh, was had the Fort Detrick laboratory uh, that handles materials like Ebola and other infectious pathogens to be studied and gain of functioned and researched uh, was actually had to be shut down, you know, because of leaks. And we've also covered, I'm just here doing a review of some of the, those resources that I was referring to. So we're not going into depth into each one of these. We're just sort of hitting you with the barrage of what we've gone into and covered in the past, including Bugs uh, being that could be used to disperse genetically modified viruses and crops. Uh, the U.S. military from an independent.co.uk article in October of 2018 talked about how the U.S. military plans to spread viruses using insects that could create a new class of biological weapon, scientists warn. We also covered the important article from thelastamericanvagabond.com uh, the Whitney Webb article titled Bats, Gene Editing, and Bioweapons, Recent DARPA Experiments Raise Concern Amid Coronavirus Outbreak. That was from January 30th of 2020. So very early, early on in, you know, some people weren't even aware of spreading coronavirus in a pandemic at that point. And Whitney went through and, and you know, discovered and uncovered DARPA's um, preempt program and other programs that DARPA had uh, done as gain of function studies 
Um, from that article, it says DARPA's announcement for preempt came just a few months after the U.S. government decided to controversially end a moratorium on so-called gain-of-function studies involving dangerous pathogens. Vice News explained that, quote, gain-of-function, unquote, studies as the follows. Known as gain-of-function studies, this type of research is ostensibly about trying to stay one step ahead of nature by making superviruses that are more pathogenic and easily transmissible. Transmissible. Scientists are able to study the way these viruses may evolve and how genetic changes may affect the way a virus interacts with its hosts. Using this information, the scientists can try to preempt the natural emergence of these traits by developing antiviral medications that are capable of staving off pandemics. And so, you know, again, that that uh, excuse given, the, the justification given, the pragmatism put on display is that it's worth it to do this sort of research and this sort of ma- manipulation of nature to create things that didn't exist in nature and create them in a lab instead. And the conclusion of that article, obviously, it's a, it's a long article that needs to be uh, given credence, and I would suggest to refamiliarize yourself with that article that we'll have in the See Also section of the BioSciWar Barrage posts. But really quick, the conclusion was that research conducted by the Pentagon, again, reading from the Last American Vagabond article by Whitney Webb, the conclusion is, Research conducted by the Pentagon and DARPA specifically has continually raised concerns not just in the field of bioweapons and biotechnology, but also in the fields of nanotechnology, robotics, and several others. DARPA, for instance, has been developing a series of unsettling research projects that range from microchips that could create and delete memories, from the human brain to voting machines and software that is rife with problems. Now, as fear regarding the current coronavirus outbreak begins to peak, companies with direct ties to DARPA have been tasked with developing its vaccine, the long-term human and environmental impacts of which are unknown and will remain unknown by the time the vaccine is expected to go to market in a few weeks' time. And this was obviously back before the vaccines were on the market, right? Furthermore, DARPA and the Pentagon's past history with bioweapons and the most recent experiments on genetic alteration and extinction technologies, as well as bats and coronaviruses in proximity to China, have been largely left out of the narrative. Despite the information being publicly available, also left out of the media narrative has been direct ties to both the USAMRIID and DARPA partnered Duke University to the city of Wuhan, including the Institute of Medical Virology. Though much about the origins of the coronavirus outbreak remain unknown, the U.S. military's ties to the aforementioned research studies and research institutions are worth detailing as such research, while justified in the name of, quote, national security, unquote, has been has the frightening potential to result in an unattended yet world-altering consequences. The lack of transparency about the research, research such as DARPA's decision to classify its controversial genetic extinction research and the technology used as a weapon of war compounds these concerns. While it is important to avoid reckless speculation as much as possible, it is the opinion of this author that the information in this report is in the public interest and that the reader should be 
should use this information to reach their own conclusions about the topics discussed herein. So that's the conclusion of that article. Uh, we also went into the U.S. government's involvement in weaponizing ticks, uh, SARS and Zika, and we covered the book Bitten by Chris Newby, uh, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, and in that book there isn't an exact conclusion and link drawn between Lyme disease and the studies done at Rocky Mountain Laboratory, uh, or... I have that book in front of me here. I'm just kind of thumbing through some of my my bookmarks, but the book itself is a great study into biological weapons studies and history of that, as well as uh, the Fort Detrick program, which was studied uh, established in 1950. The biological warfare laboratories at Fort Detrick, anyway, and a quote in chapter five says. Um, from the Sofield experiments in Stratton, Alberta, Canada. In 1953, Biological Warfare Laboratories at Fort Detrick established a program to study the use of anthropods by spreading antipersonal BW agents. The advantage of anthropods as biological weapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so as to mask it... Um, so that it mask so that a mask is no protection to a soldier and they will remain alive for some time keeping an area constantly dangerous and that was the US army chemical corps summary of major events and problems from the Rocky Mountain Arsenal archives so we can see that the use and study of and deployment of biological weapons agents uh, by governments around the world but by the including the U.S. government, uh, Fort Detrick, and uh, there's just a tremendous work by Chris Newby, and uh, we did two episodes on on that, uh, TikTok BioOp and the TikTok BioOp 2 that you can find in the resources for the bio war and the house and we had another article that we covered by CNN from July 17th of 2019 House of Representatives representatives orders Pentagon to investigate whether ticks were once used as biological weapons um and you know that's more or less pointing out that this was even being discussed as on CNN so we're not just out here in left field talking about some crazy conspiracy stuff. This is known now that our you know that we've done this that um it's possible that there are links to Lyme disease and this research as well and the spread of Lyme disease through ticks and it's still a large problem for people. Uh it says here in that article each year nearly 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported to the CDC which also says that more than 300,000 people are diagnosed with the disease each year. Skipping down a little, if the Pentagon investigation finds that the Defense Department weaponized Lyme disease ticks, the armament calls for a report on the scope of the experiment of whether the insects were used to, quote, released outside of any laboratories by accident or experiment design, unquote. 
okay, so moving forward uh, in some of the other resources that we want to cover, we talked about Project Coast. Uh, that was a 1980s top-secret chemical and biological weapons program instituted by the apartheid-era government of South Africa. Here reading from just a Wikipedia on that. Project Coast was the successor to a limited post-war CBW program, which mainly produced the lethal agents CX powder and mustard gas, as well as other non-lethal tear gas for riot control purposes. The program was headed by Wouter Basson, a cardiologist who was the personal physician of South African Prime Minister P.W. Botha. And in that Project Coast, the South African Chemical, un, uh, skipping down here in the Wikipedia, the South African Chemical Weapons Program investigated all the standard CW agents for the irritant riot control agents, lethal nerve agents, and anti-cholerogenic deterrents, which have been researched by Virtually all countries that have carried out CW research, the South African program uh, deferred in its aims from the CBW programs of many countries in its major focus that the program was to develop non-lethal agents to suppress internal dissent. So essentially just showing that, you know, they had their own uh, biological weapons research programs and developing CW, CBW agents in South Africa. And so the reason why we were covering a lot of that stuff earlier on in the BioSci War is we, you know, there's this narrative out there that like the government would never do that. The, the, what are you're saying? They'd have to be in on it or the, the 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 U.S. government would never be involved in these things when that's exactly what they're involved in, and they're heavily involved in these things. And you know, a lot of what we covered at first was just to sort of prove to the complete naysayer that things like Operation Sea Spray had have gone on in our in our history. That this is well documented that the U.S. government is more than willing to fund these things, that they're more than willing to test these things on the population, and they're more than willing to use these things to achieve their agendas and goals. We'll just say that. And th that's well documented, and there's a lot of evidence surrounding that. Beyond that, you know, can we tie that in? Can we find links? Can we find evidence that perhaps COVID-19 not only was developed and funded by the U.S. government, by the U.K. government, by perhaps even uh, things like Metabiota, and that's sort of the, the sister organization, a similar organization to EcoHealth Alliance that contracted with NIH to get funding and carry out the studies in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, something that was very popularized by Ron Paul, Rand Paul's questioning of Anthony Fauci and him denying that there was any gain-of-function funding done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology and calling Rand an idiot, basically, and saying that he didn't know what he was talking about. We're going to be playing those clips at some point here. I had them lined up to play in the queue in the BioSciWar Barrage we need to get the latest 
from Anthony Fauci and Rand Paul's uh, boxing match is probably going to continue on and get, uh, you know, some of those clips played into the show here. It's quite epic and really historical hearing them go back and forth about that uh, there where uh, Fauci's really getting grilled uh, by Rand. And, you know, again, is there any connection there that we, we need to be aware of? Can we find better connections? Can we find more evidence? And that's really what we're going, our goal is to be here is to uncover anything that we can and take, take lead, let the evidence lead us where, uh, instead of where it goes, rather than draw conclusions outright and up front. Uh, but it is my opinion, and I'll just give my opinion here. This is not something I'm going to immediately now back up with documentation for the next three hours, and we'll talk, we'll talk about what the rest of this show is about. As you can see, it's a much longer episode than we're, we've been doing in the Freedoms Rising series, and that's because we're doing the BioSci War Barrage. We have lots of information to cover, lots of things to put into the record. But I, I think that what's gone on is that this pandemic was used to bring in the next steps of a long agenda that's been going on for a long time, to bring in more of the global government, to bring in more of the one world vision of the World Economic Forum, of the United Nations, of the IMF, of the Bank of International Settlements, not just these institutions, but also the people that have been promoting the idea and the philosophy of the New World Order. And really, this is a, a triggering point, a catalyst for those agendas being really forced and pushed into our lives. And things like, uh, you know, vaccine passports or uh, controlling and limiting your movement, not just based, based on vaccines, I think, in the future, but other things will be tied into that. But for now, Again, the preliminary use of this is, you know, the, the current and ongoing pandemic. And that's why they're going to keep throwing out new uh, variants, new viruses, new things that are coming in. And uh, it's also a way to just steal the wealth of nations and continue to rape and pillage any wealth that's left in them by transferring money from us to them, essentially. Uh, we saw that with the Operation Warp Speed. We see this with the current and continuing funding and promotion of these uh, marketing agencies of DARPA, like uh, Moderna and Pfizer, <laughs> Johnson and Johnson. These are really just all the marketing agencies for this thing. Um, really, when we start to peel back the covers on this thing, we can see DARPA's hand in just about every aspect of this and them really kind of carrying out and running the pandemic uh, response now and becoming much more militarized than people uh, could even imagine. But that being said, that is not something we're going to try to push and try to, you know, only look at information that has to do with what I just claimed as my opinion, but looking at all the information. Uh, like, f for example, the article that we're going to be get getting into here from the Vanity Fair goes into uncovering uh, the... It's called the lab leak theory inside the fight to uncover COVID-19's origins. And the slant is more about, you know, how we couldn't talk about the lab leak before, but here's why we should be looking at the lab leak. And I think the word leak 
is the red herring there or the it's intentionally put in there to make us think that this was an accident and just again my opinion is is that this was not accidental that this there was way too much coordination and way too many parts of the nefarious agenda put forward afterward and things that don't even make sense but but they do make sense if you see this as planned they they do make sense if you can see the bigger picture here and how this marches forward their agendas uh, in a big way and they're able to bring in their their great global reset and also just have people go along with it because of the fear and because of the belief that that world of science has has got the truth and that they're fighting for our best interest and the truth of about every matter right where we talked where we also uncovered by exposing Yuval Noah Harari's you know opinion that and and really more just a understanding i mean he, he him being you know the right hand man of Klaus Schwab and also you know promoting all this stuff is someone who pragmatically but also objectively just sees the world of science in our world it, the mainstream scientific uh community is about power and and control and the religion he was talking about is not just like oh the christianity is used to control people it's also like the religion of government the religion of authority the religion of of um believing in the money as something that's um real or something that uh this very powerful belief system in in money right these sorts of religions the be- belief in science the those sort of religions and beliefs are what they're manipulating and controlling us with and as he was saying there i mean this is not about the truth it's about power it's about control and you know they're not we're not just we're not just here looking for the truth you know as far as what we're being told in the mainstream media in the scientific community that's not the main that's not what their agenda is their agenda is to control you their agenda is to m- manipulate you into giving them more power more control more wealth and using all these narratives to do that that's what that's what they're doing with the science that's what they're doing with the information so i don't think it was a leak i think this has been intentional to you know put something out there into the species that can then be supposedly tested for and then you know use the information to weaponize essentially into getting people to conform with uh whatever they say essentially when and you know if it's vaccines that you need to take go ahead and do that if it's this you need to do go ahead and do that if it's something you need to stop saying we're going to censor you if you and you couldn't even talk about the lab leak theory back when we were first doing the biosci war or in the early stages of the pandemic, you couldn't talk about, I mean, when I say you couldn't, you could, but in, it was like so unacceptable to talk about gain of function, or it was just, you couldn't even say that it came from a lab. It was not, it was zoonautical. It had to be and jumped from a bat. Didn't you know that? And now it's like becoming more and more common to talk about these things. And, oh, well, yeah, it was a leak. It came from the Wuhan lab. It leaked out. And I think that's still sort of covering it up. That's a limited hangout, right? To say that it leaked. It didn't, uh, you know, in in this podcaster's opinion, it wasn't a leak. It was an intentional release. So then we need to d- discover more about where and when and how and why and all these things, right? It, it might not have been in China. It could have been in the Ukraine. It could have been having to do with 
uh, some of the funding and bio, bio labs that have been funded through the NIH in the Ukraine through Metabiota and other companies or uh, organ- nonprofit organizations similar to Eco Health Alliance. And we'll be getting into that, I think, next episode. I have an article I'd like to read into the record uh, regarding those topics and something we haven't really covered here today much in the BioSciWar Barrage sort of summary. Uh, but let's we're going to play that whole article, The Lab Leak Theory, Inside the Fight to Uncover Coronavirus from uh, Vanity Fair, sort of a well-known publication house, a reputable source, and play that into the record for your uh, listening pleasure and your learning pleasure and ability to get more context here in the BioSci War. And then we'll also be playing uh, an extended clip from the Michael Eden interview that you heard there in the beginning and uh, getting into more of that from Majid Nawaz from his radical show where he had Michael Eden on who, again, uh, was someone who worked very high up in Pfizer and was a a chief uh, executive there. uh, He served as the chief scientist and vice president of Pfizer's allergy and respiratory research unit in Sandwich, Kent, where he oversaw the development of drugs for asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. During his work at Pfizer, Eden was responsible for the selection of targets and progression of the new molecules into human trials. Um, and that's just reading here from his Wikipedia, which starts out that he's a giant conspiracy theorist and he's an an anti-vaxxer, <laughs> when really he's he's bringing you a very weighted, a very strong opinion. Um, it is his opinion, but he's more of an authoritative uh, stance on these things. It comes from someone who, with his background, right? And that's why we're playing it here. It's not just some person just talking about these things. This happens to be an important person in this story because he worked at Pfizer, was a big part of Pfizer, and, um, you know, is obviously risking a lot by saying the things that he's saying. But I think if you you listen to it, you'll see that it, it, to me, it's more like common sense stuff that he's saying against the mainstream narrative, which is, of course, going to attack and make him sound totally crazy for saying the things that he's saying. And we're also going to include, uh, at first in in the wrap-up here, which goes on for quite some time, will be the longer extended clip from the Joe Rogan thing, because I think people take that out of context as well. And him, you know, calling out Anthony Fauci as being shameful for trying to cover up this gain of function research. And not because I'm like, oh, Joe Rogan needs to be promoted. He's such a smart guy. It's just that that stuff gets skewed. So we're going to put it, play a longer clip of that into the record here, not just a short little clip that everyone can then take out of context. Um, but it will put it within the context that it was put into. And I I don't have to agree with everything that Joe Rogan says, or I'm not some like huge supporter and promoter of him. And then that uh, Yeadon interview will be played. And then the Vanity Fair article to close us out. Is that the order that I had it in? Let's see. It could be the other way around. The Yeadon interview closes us out, right? And the Vanity Fair is played after the Joe Rogan article. So we'll get into that. I'll get out of the way. I'm going to uh, come back with part two uh, coming up. I it We'll see how this goes. There's going to be more work done in the pre-production of the BioSciWar Barrage. 
So I don't know if we're going to stick to the daily. We're going to try to get out the four episodes a week, but they may, you may cut down a little bit. We may not be able to get as many episodes into the record because of the length and the amount of information that we'll be putting into these. But I am uh, here working in the background on getting that information out to you. And I appreciate you for listening to Freedoms Rising here on the TylerBloyer.com feeds. Uh, we'll leave the resources and notes in the episode website post on where I published this on TylerBloyer.com as well as FreedomsRising.live. You can catch me on the One Great Work Network. We're also syndicated over on the Grand Theft World podcast feeds uh, where uh, you can catch a link that'll take you back to the uh, primary resources of this show. And thank you again for supporting the work here we do at freedomsrising.live studios. And uh, I will get back with you guys after we listen to these clips and we'll be back in the next episode for the BioSci War Barrage part two. So this has been part one. A good uh, sort of recap of what we've covered so far. Definitely don't have time to go into everything. And there's so much out there to cover that we're not going to be able to cover it all. But we can hopefully get some of those important key articles and information and sound clips and media pop culture clips played in here to help people have a better, uh, you know, Swiss Army knife uh, kit that has all the different tools that you need in it to be able to combat a lot of the information out there and practice some intellectual self-defense so we're not just uh, barraged ourselves with all the you know media manipulation and um, mind control out there. We need to have some self-defense, and part of that and part of why this is a solution in Freedoms Rising to understand this stuff is because that's how we will begin to understand that information is by taking the time to go through it and discovering for ourselves and discerning and using methods to um, discover at least what the truth isn't, at least what things aren't, and uh, then be able to start to understand more about what is true by that process of negation. Okay, thanks guys. We'll talk to you next episode and enjoy these clips. My family, so I packed up all my stuff. I headed to Las Vegas. I stayed with my mom, and every time she came in the door, I was like, "Wipe your shoes!" Jesus, <laughs> I was Christ. a lunatic, yeah, because I was scared. <laughs> I didn't know what a pandemic was. Yeah, and then like I was like, my stepdad would go out, and I'm like, "Here's your mask. Here's your mask," and um, I was wiping down all the groceries, and then I got so crazy into it that I was like, I got like a toolbox out of the garage, and I was like, I just snapped. And I did you get COVID ever? Um. I I guess so probably but I I would You don't know? Well, I mean, I tested positive on a test. Does that count? <laughs> yes. Okay. I think that means you had covid. Yeah. Um Unless it's a false positive. Yeah, which those exist. Did you get a antibody test? No. Damn, we could have given you one. Yeah, but what do you have to do for that? I don't N- know. Easy. Blood test. Very it takes 2 seconds. Like, no, no, no. Pin, pinprick. Very oh. very quick. Oh. Jamie's the king. Okay. He's got the best antibodies in the land. Tested tested today. How, how thick were they? Yeah. How thick. often do you test? He does it just to show off. Just make sure. His gigantic, <laughs> an, his antibody line is like a fat, sharpie line. <laughs> like legitimately. Do you, did, yeah, so I think I, you know, well, what happened was um, I went out in Las Vegas and I got a, ha- a hangover, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm not old enough to have those yet. <laughs> I need to learn my lesson already. Um, but I went out in Las Vegas. I got a hangover. And um, then I wasn't feeling good the next day. So I was like, okay, I'm not feeling good. It's right before Christmas. And I was like, um, 
my mom's like, are you sure this is a hangover? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. But if you want to test me, I don't, you know, it's your house. And she tested me and it was positive. And um, it was pretty aggressive. Like I was really, really sick for about seven days. Um, my body was aching. Like it hurt. Like I, it, like everything hurt so bad. So you definitely had COVID. Yeah. So why saying like... I guess. I guess I did. I mean, I mean, you definitely had it. You have all the symptoms of COVID, and yeah. you tested positive. Fine, I had COVID. I, I had COVID. <laughs> I don't. I don't. But where did? Okay, so COVID's definitely different than the flu. Then it's definitely. Um, it's definitely different than the flu. It's this is an engineered virus. This right. is a virus that, that was created in a fucking lab. I don't think they did it on purpose. I really don't. No, I think I think the Chinese lab in which they did it in Wuhan was so bad. It, they they were cited for safety violations as recently as I think 2018. I think the real question is why were they doing this kind of research? Mm-hmm. And the people that understand the research that they were doing, like Barack Obama stopped that stuff from happening in 2014. Mm-hmm. He put the kibosh on that back then. When the Trump administration was kind of chaotic, that's when they started it all up again. Mm-hmm. And they were lying about funding it. They were lying about funding it. They were saying, we don't fund it. But you do fund Eco Health Alliance, and Eco Health Alliance funds the Wuhan lab. So shut the fuck up. This yeah. is all crazy. Like these guys, the, the emails alone that were transferred back and forth from Peter Datsik and, and uh, Anthony Fauci and all, and all these people that were involved in the funding of this research, mm-hmm. just the way they were framing it and the way they were disparaging legitimate scientists and legitimate doctors that were not lockstep in, in agreement with them, it's fucking shameful. Yeah. It's not scientific. Shameful as it's in people political. need to be in prison, it's, maybe? They, Fuck yeah! Yeah, and not only that, they they, they should it's, this should be a thing. Like Rand Paul's the only one who calls him out on it. Yeah, and he does it on a regular basis, and he's a hundred percent correct yeah. in the things that he's saying about the funding of this he's been particular type of research. Because when you see Fauci say that it's not gain of function research. But that's not true because the NIH says it's gain of function yeah. research. They all say yeah. it now because they they want to protect their own ass. This is a rumor online, and and I'm going to ask you a bunch of. Okay, so is Dr. Fauci's wife on the NIH? Isn't she like one of the heads? Isn't that some sort of thing? Well, let's find out. Yeah, she does something. She she has some function. And he used to be the head of the NIH during that whole AIDS yes. thing. Which He's been we're not running it, making He's, any comparisons to if you make any comparisons. Here to it is. Them. She's the head of the Department of Bioethics. It's a National Institute of Health Clinical Center. Yes, there it is. Do you think maybe this is well? It's it's fucking. Problem? It's all it's all crazy because these people are they have massive amounts of power to decide who gets funded, what labs get funded, and no one wants to step out of line. Mm-hmm. There's a crazy fucking book that I'm in the middle of. That's a very controversial book, and it was one of those books. I'm like, God, do I want to get into this? Robert Kennedy <laughs> I got like Jr. 10. Oh, yeah. Yes. Robert Kennedy Jr.'s right. book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Holy fucking yeah. shit. Yeah. Like, there's some stuff in that that is 100% verifiable truth. Yeah. And it's crazy. I know and, that's the only time I think I've ever... I got I got your number from Kevin, and I was like, dude, you have to, have you had Robert? Have you had him? No, uh, Robert, I haven't had him on. And I was I don't know if you got that text message, but I'm like, oh, it was one of those idiots that texted him saying you should have this so-and-so on your podcast. Uh, that's Listen, that's how I find out a lot about a lot of really interesting people. But he he had um, – I had talked to him because he, um, he's he got the Child Health Defense Program mm-hmm. that he does. Yeah. 
And um, it's interesting enough, his wife is an actress. I think, I don't know if it's... Um, She's the wife on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, um, she was fully vaccinated and has publicly said, you know, like while... Uh, Robert was getting in trouble. She's like, I do not have the same beliefs as my husband, you know. And everybody was like, ooh, ouch. Like, why are you going to do that to your but husband? But you remember when Kellyanne Conway was the White House press secretary and then her husband hates Trump? Yeah. So her husband was publicly against Trump. I like that. I love that. I, I like love that. that. I, I think we need more of that. Yes, why not? Yeah. People think... can be married and have completely different views. Yeah, but she totally, like, like was like, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not with him on this. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, damn, I don't yeah. know if I'd ever do that. <laughs> like, yeah. But Robert, um, I got on the phone with him and I was like, you know, I'm afraid our union, uh, sag after union, is going to mandate these vaccines. Um, you know, is there any, you know, taking them to court? How do we, how do we figure this out? And um, he's like, well, and I didn't know this. He's like, well, my wife is an actress and there's no getting around it right now. And I was like, damn, like... How, how, they, and I even looked up online today, they still are extending that man, mandate till mid July with all the information of, about it being safe and effective and with all of that stuff coming out. Um, how are they still mandating this in anything? I think that the people that are mandating it need to be made an example out of. Well, it's, it's very strange. I think they do it because they think it's the right thing to do. I don't think they do it. You have such a more positive outlook than I do. I just I'm objective. I'm objective. I'm, I look at I, I try to look at everything objectively. Okay, I try to define, look at everything. What does that mean, objective? I don't look at it in terms Emotional. of what the the answer that I want to be correct. Mm -hmm. I look at it in ter I don't look at it like oh I'm suspicious because I go well what are the actual facts mm -hmm. and why why would people do this and why would people do that when you're the head of a union okay and you uh, have something like a national public crisis a national public health crisis you have to show that you are taking the correct actions the general belief of the public is the correct action is to be vaccinated if you are going to step outside of that and say uh, we're going to take a rebellious position and we're not going to uh, mandate that people be vaccinated, but we are going to mandate that people have to work and we're going to like put them in these sets and we're going to have them around people. But the general consensus is for most people think that you're supposed to be vaccinated, right? I would say like more than 60% of the population thinks you should be vaccinated. When these people are on the set with these people that are represented by a union that doesn't think you have to be vaccinated. The other people that are vaccinated and feel like they did the right thing now feel like they're be being put in danger by other folks, which is really wild, right? Because if that fucking vaccine worked, you wouldn't be thinking like that because you would be thinking, now I can't get it. Yeah. Remember when Rachel Maddow was saying that on television? Remember when Anthony Fauci was saying that? Yeah. You're not going to spread the disease. You're not going to catch the disease. That's not true. So which is why I don't think that 60% of the population still think it needs to be right. Like I think most people are not aware of all this. Most yeah. people are not listening to me. They're not listening to podcasts. They're not reading the real Anthony Fauci. They're not, they're, most people are getting their news from CNN or from MSNBC or whatever the fuck they listen to, even Fox News. You, you, do you they're feel not like getting, it's changing a little bit, though? I don't know. Not on those. It's changing a little I think in that they're starting to be open about the fact that why are people still sick? Why are people like people are getting boosted and extra like. Fauci's had two boosters and he's sick with COVID. Yeah. You know, like maybe it protected him. Maybe it did. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know whether or not he took remdesivir mm -hmm. because yeah. there's a lot of studies that show that that stuff is toxic to your kidneys. Mm -hmm. 
And this is all. This is something that also is in that book, well, the, the real Anthony Fauci. Book. I wish I was, you know, a little bit more objective. I, I wish I was like that, but my brain kind of works off of um, maybe more emotional. Am I, would that make me more? Mine does too. I just so don't I just, let it. I I feel like when I see um, them still mandating something that all of these um, documents have come out and said, what is it, 13, 14% effective, um, you know, all of these people are still getting COVID-19 and all of it's, you know, I just feel like to push on and force people to get this ma- this vaccine that they don't believe in is in my just simple mind, it just seems like an abuse of power to kind of weed out the people that will comply and, um and weed out, or, or weed out, weed out the people that won't comply, and so that now you know we don't have. I think it, it, we don't have such like you know a big of, a, as big of a problem. I think there's an element of that, but I think the element of that comes after the decisions were already made. The decisions were made, in my opinion, originally to try to protect the public health, and then it became a thing where there is a tremendous amount of money that's being funneled into various organizations, into various politicians, into campaign funds, into all these different things, and it's by these enormous pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, these and co- I, I, I don't is- think that like it wasn't like when Trump came out and said, you know, um, we're going to you know, shut, shut the world down for a second, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that – I feel like – that was a really hard decision because if he didn't, then they would have ammunition on him for, you know, a lifetime and it would have just been like, it, I mean, I feel like that was a really hard decision for. Well, it's a hard decision, period, because yeah. you don't know what to do. Yeah. So like, it was like the two weeks don't... to slow the spread. But now in looking back at, at the lockdowns, looking back at the masks, looking back at the forced vaccinations, I feel like anybody who's enforcing it moving forward is um, absolutely criminal. But the thing is, in California, they don't think like that. In California, oh, there are a lot of people I that I'm out. friends with. Uh, see, this is why this is one of the reasons why I disagree. There's people that I'm friends with, okay, that aren't even in the fucking mo- movie industry. They're not even in Hollywood, and they think everyone should be vaccinated and boosted. And they've even had second boot. And I I know people that have had boosts and they've had problems because of it. Yeah. They've gotten wrecked, yeah. and they're still. In support of boosting in this because they think that this is the way to go to protect. Everybody. I'm like protect everybody still like we, we, this is we're in July of 2022. Mm-hmm. OK, Omicron is the latest variant. I had it for a day. I didn't even believe I had it. I came in here. My nose was sniffling. I was joking with our nurse and I said, maybe this is it. Maybe I got it. She was like, you're not going to believe it. You're positive. I go, shut the <laughs> fuck up. I'm like, this is COVID. Granted, this is after I'd already had Delta, so I had immunity, I had some antibodies, and I basically had sniffles. I, the next day, I was negative, by the mm. way. And so, do you feel like the the first time you got it, Delta, was it then? That was real. Um, first and, time I got it was real. And do you feel like the second time you got it, your immunity? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, my, my antibodies had kicked in. In so fact, it's kind of, um, Bill Gates had said getting this. weaker, right? Bill Gates had said this, which, which the way he said it, I think he phrased it. In a clumsy way, which, by the way, I can relate to because I do that every day. But he said when he was talking about it that unfortunately, Omicron is be- works better than the vaccine yeah. at protecting people. Yeah. And it really does. Mm-hmm. So I had Delta, which was the first. Because everybody the hardcore had that one. over Christmas. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Omicron was, Omicron's very mild. So my thing is, well, if you're not going to force. Well, I had something else because it was not mild no, 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 for me. <laughs> I bet you had Delta. Right. Delta's rough. 
some people get bad from Omicron, but you know, a lot of people that really, I've, I have friends that got really sick from Omicron and they're vaccinated and they got really sick from it. And there's, uh, there's some concern that Omicron might be what's called a vaccine escape variant. And what a vaccine escape variant is, is when you have variants that are what they call, le- uh, oh, excuse me, vaccines that are leaky vaccines, vaccines that offer protection, but don't provide you immunity. Right. Mm-hmm. Like so you it offers you some some antibodies and it protects you from getting really seriously ill, but it doesn't stop you from getting it. Well, then the virus figures out a way to get around those antibodies. So what it does is it kind of mutates and favors the the vaccine variants, which can get through your antibodies. So, like, say if if you're vaccinated for the original strain. Right. The original strain of COVID. Well, that's not around anymore. Right. So you have B cell and T cell memory that protect you somewhat. But when your body tries to react and produce antibodies for that original strain, that original strain is not around anymore. Mm -hmm. And then this Omicron sneaks in through the door because you were you were like, where is COVID? Where is it? We're looking for it out here. And this Omicron COVID just sneaks right in the back door. And people get really sick. Right. So this is the speculation why some people get really sick that are vaccinated with Omicron, whereas a lot of people that are not vaccinated that get Omicron aren't getting as sick. Right, right. But that's also anecdotal. It could be those people that aren't getting as sick, were healthier, they take better care of themselves. There's so many variables. Yeah. I just don't like when people tell me there's a one-size-fits-all approach to health. Yeah. Because I know... There's, I know there's people that are doing way more for their health. Right. They're taking vitamins, they're resting and exercising, and then there's other people that are drinking and doing heroin. Right. We can't say that these people are, they both need the same treatment right. for a fucking disease. Or there's disease. like people who are like, you know, 350 pounds that are like, well, I'm yeah. fat, so you have to take this for me, for my health. Exactly. Um, you know, like me and Kevin are good examples. Like, you know, I love food, I love drink, you know, you know, I love to hang out. Um, he loves to get up and run his six miles. You know, he loves yeah. to, uh, well, for, he doesn't do very good with whiskey, so <laughs> he's not really allowed to, for whiskey. But, you know, he doesn't very rarely um, pollute his body. Right. And in my head, you know, it's like I can't, until I'm doing everything I possibly can to take care of myself um, and be responsible for my health, who am I going to be to be like, hey, you have to take, this is what I would take. I would take these antibiotics. You have to take these antibiotics. You right. Know? Autumn presents Viral Inflection Written by Catherine Eban 1. A group called Drastic Gilles Dimanouf is a data scientist with the Bank of New Zealand in Auckland. He was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome 10 years ago and sees it as an advantage. I'm very good at finding patterns in data when other people see nothing, he says. Early last spring, as cities worldwide were shutting down, Dimonuf, 52, began reading up on the origins of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The prevailing theory was that it had jumped from bats to some other species before making the leap to humans at a market in China, where some of the earliest cases appeared in late 2019. The Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market in the city of Wuhan was a complex of markets selling seafood, meat, fruit, and vegetables. A handful of vendors sold live wild animals, a possible source of the virus. That wasn't the only theory, though. Wuhan is also home to China's foremost coronavirus research laboratory, housing one of the world's largest collections of bat samples and bat virus strains. 
the Wuhan Institute of Virology's lead coronavirus researcher, Shi Zhengli, was among the first to identify horseshoe bats as the natural reservoir for SARS-CoV, the virus that sparked a deadly outbreak in 2002. After SARS, bats became a major subject of study for virologists around the world, and Shi became known in China as Bat Woman for her fearless exploration of their caves to collect samples. More recently, Shi and her colleagues have performed high-profile experiments that made pathogens more infectious. Such research, known as gain-of-function, has generated heated controversy among virologists. To some people, it seemed natural to ask whether the virus causing the global pandemic had somehow leaked from one of the WIV's labs, a possibility Shi has strenuously denied. On February 19, 2020, the Lancet, among the most respected and influential medical journals in the world, published a statement that roundly rejected the lab leak hypothesis. Signed by 27 scientists, the statement expressed solidarity with all scientists and health professionals in China and asserted, We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. The Lancet statement effectively ended the debate over COVID-19's origins before it began. To Dimonuf, following from the sidelines, it was as if it had been nailed to the church doors, establishing the natural origin theory as orthodoxy. Everyone was intimidated. That set the tone. The statement struck Dimonuf as totally non-scientific. To him, it seemed to contain no evidence or information and so he decided to begin his own inquiry in a proper way, with no idea of what he would find. Dimonuf began searching for patterns in the available data, and it wasn't long before he spotted one. China's laboratories were said to be airtight, with safety practices equivalent to those in the U.S. But Dimonuf soon discovered that there had been four SARS-related lab breaches since 2004, two at a top laboratory in Beijing, Due to overcrowding, a live SARS virus that had been improperly deactivated had been moved to a refrigerator in a corridor. A graduate student then examined it in the electron microscope room and sparked an outbreak. Dimonov published his findings on Medium. By then, he had begun working with another armchair investigator, Rudolf de Mestre, a laboratory project director based in Paris who had previously worked in China Demestra was busy debunking the notion that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was a laboratory at all. In fact, the WIV housed numerous laboratories that worked on coronaviruses. Only one has the highest biosafety protocol, BSL-4, in which researchers must wear full-body pressurized suits with independent oxygen. Others are designated BSL-3 and even BSL-2, roughly as secure as an American dentist's office. Having connected online, Dimonuf and Demestre began assembling a comprehensive list of research laboratories in China. As they posted their findings on Twitter, they linked up with others around the world. Some were cutting-edge scientists at prestigious research institutes. Others were science enthusiasts. Together, they formed a group called DRASTIC, short for Decentralized Radical Autonomous Search Team Investigating COVID-19. Their stated objective was to solve the riddle of COVID-19's origin.
At times, it seemed the only other people entertaining the lab leak theory were crackpots or political hacks. President Donald Trump's former political advisor, Steve Bannon, for instance, joined forces with an exiled Chinese billionaire named Guo Wengui to fuel claims that China had developed the disease as a bioweapon and purposefully unleashed it on the world. As proof, they paraded a Hong Kong scientist around right-wing media outlets until her manifest lack of expertise doomed the charade. With disreputable wingnuts on one side of them and scornful experts on the other, the drastic researchers often felt as if they were on their own in the wilderness, working on the world's most urgent mystery. They weren't alone but investigators inside the U.S. government asking similar questions were operating in an environment that was as politicized and hostile to open inquiry as any Twitter echo chamber. When Trump himself floated the lab leak hypothesis in April 2020, his divisiveness made things more, not less, challenging for those seeking the truth. The drastic people are doing better research than the U.S. government, says David Asher, a former senior investigator under contract to the State Department. The question is, why? 2. A Can of Worms Since December 1, 2019, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 has infected more than 170 million people around the world and killed more than 3.5 million. To this day, We don't know how or why this novel coronavirus suddenly appeared in the human population. Answering that question is more than an academic pursuit. Without knowing where it came from, we can't be sure we're taking the right steps to prevent a recurrence. And yet, in the wake of the Lancet statement and under the cloud of Trump's toxic racism, which contributed to an alarming wave of anti-Asian violence in the U.S., One possible answer to this all-important question remained largely off-limits until the spring of 2021. Behind closed doors, however, national security and public health experts and officials across a range of departments in the executive branch were locked in high-stakes battles over what could and couldn't be investigated and made public. A months-long Vanity Fair investigation, interviews with more than 40 people, and a review of hundreds of pages of U.S. government documents, including internal memos, meeting minutes, and email correspondence, found that conflicts of interest, stemming in part from large government grants supporting controversial virology research, hampered the U.S. investigation into COVID-19's origin at every step. In one State Department meeting, Officials seeking to demand transparency from the Chinese government say they were explicitly told by colleagues not to explore the WIV's gain-of-function research because it would bring unwelcome attention to U.S. government funding of it. In an internal memo obtained by Vanity Fair, Thomas DeNano, former acting assistant secretary of the State Department's Bureau of Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance, wrote that staff from two bureaus, his own, and the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation warned leaders within his bureau not to pursue an investigation into the origin of COVID-19 because it would open a can of worms if it continued. There are reasons to doubt the lab leak hypothesis. There is a long history of natural spillovers leading to outbreaks, even when the host animals have remained a mystery for months and years, 
and some expert virologists say the supposed oddities of the SARS-CoV-2 sequence have been found in nature. But for most of the past year, the lab leak scenario was treated not simply as unlikely or even inaccurate, but as morally out of bounds. In late March, former Centers of Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield received death threats from fellow scientists after telling CNN that he believed COVID-19 had originated in a lab. I was threatened and ostracized because I proposed another hypothesis, Redfield told Vanity Fair. I expected it from politicians. I didn't expect it from science. With Trump out of office, it should be possible to reject his xenophobic agenda and still ask why, in all the world, did the outbreak begin in the city with a laboratory housing one of the world's most extensive collections of bat viruses doing some of the most aggressive research? Richard Ebright, Ph.D., Board of Governors Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Rutgers University, said that from the very first reports of a novel bat-related coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, it took him a nanosecond or a picosecond to consider a link to the WIV. Only two other labs in the world, in Galveston, Texas, and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, were doing similar research. It's not a dozen cities, he said. It's three places. Then came the revelation that the Lancet statement was not only signed, but organized by a zoologist named Peter Dazak, who has repackaged U.S. government grants and allocated them to facilities conducting gain-of-function research, among them the WIV itself. David Asher, now a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, ran the State Department's day-to-day COVID-19 origins inquiry. He said it soon became clear that there is a huge gain-of-function bureaucracy inside the federal government. As months go by without a host animal that proves the natural theory, the questions from credible doubters have gained in urgency. To one former federal health official, the situation boiled down to this. An institute funded by American dollars is trying to teach a bat virus to infect human cells. Then there is a virus in the same city as that lab. It is not being intellectually honest not to consider the hypothesis of a lab escape. And given how aggressively China blocked a transparent investigation and its government's history of lying, obfuscating, and crushing dissent, it's fair to ask if Shu Zhengli, the Wuhan Institute's lead coronavirus researcher, would be at liberty to report a leak from her lab even if she wanted to. On May 26th, President Joe Biden announced that the intelligence community had coalesced around two likely scenarios and asked for a more definitive conclusion within 90 days. His statement noted, The failure to get our inspectors on the ground in those early months will always hamper any investigation into the origin of COVID-19. That wasn't the only failure. In the words of David Fyth, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the East Asia Bureau. The story of why parts of the U.S. government were not as curious as many of us think they should have been is a hugely important one. 3. Smelled like a cover-up On December 9, 2020, 
roughly a dozen State Department employees from four different bureaus gathered in a conference room in Foggy Bottom to discuss an upcoming fact-finding mission to Wuhan, organized in part by the World Health Organization. The group agreed on the need to press China to allow a thorough, credible, and transparent investigation. The conversation then turned to the more sensitive question. What should the U.S. government say publicly about the Wuhan Institute of Virology? A small group within the State Department's Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance Bureau had been studying the Institute for months. The group had recently acquired classified intelligence, suggesting that three WIV researchers conducting gain-of-function experiments on coronavirus samples had fallen ill in the fall of 2019, before the COVID-19 outbreak was known to have started. As officials at the meeting discussed what they could share with the public, they were advised by Christopher Park, the director of the State Department's Biological Policy Staff, in the Bureau of International Security and Non-Proliferation, not to say anything that would point to the U.S. government's own role in gain-of-function research, according to documentation of the meeting obtained by Vanity Fair. Some of the attendees were absolutely floored, said an official familiar with the proceedings, that someone in the U.S. government could make an argument that is so nakedly against transparency in light of the unfolding catastrophe was shocking and disturbing. Park, who in 2017 had been involved in lifting a U.S. government moratorium on funding for gain-of-function research, was not the only official to warn the State Department investigators against digging in sensitive places. As the group probed the lab leak scenario, among other possibilities, its members were repeatedly advised not to open a Pandora's box, said four former State Department officials. The admonitions smelled like a cover-up, said Denano, and I wasn't going to be part of it. Reached for comment, Park denied suggesting that information be withheld from policymakers or the public. I am skeptical that people genuinely felt they were being discouraged from presenting facts, he said, adding that it is making an enormous and unjustifiable leap to suggest that research of that kind meant that something untoward is going on. 4. An Antibody Response There were two main teams inside the U.S. government working to uncover the origins of COVID-19 one in the State Department, and another under the direction of the National Security Council. No one at the State Department had much interest in Wuhan's laboratories at first, but they were gravely concerned with China's apparent cover-up of the outbreak's severity. The government had shut down the Huanan market, ordered laboratory samples destroyed, claimed the right to review any scientific research about COVID-19 ahead of publication, and expelled a team of Wall Street Journal reporters. In January 2020, a Wuhan ophthalmologist named Li Wenliang, who tried to warn his colleagues that the pneumonia could be a form of SARS, was summoned by police, accused of disrupting the social order, and forced to write a self-criticism. He died of COVID-19 the next month, lionized by the Chinese public as a hero and whistleblower. As questions swirled about the Chinese government's coercion and suppression, Miles Yu, the State Department's principal China strategist, noted that the WIV had remained largely silent. Yu, who is fluent in Mandarin, began mirroring its website and compiling a dossier of questions about its research. 
In April, he gave his dossier to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who in turn publicly demanded access to the laboratories there. It is not clear whether Yu's dossier made its way to Trump, but on April 30, 2020, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence put out a statement whose apparent goal was to suppress a growing furor around the lab leak theory. It said that the intelligence community concurs with the wide scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified, but would continue to assess whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan. It was pure panic, said former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger. They were getting flooded with queries. Someone made the unfortunate decision to say, we basically know nothing, so let's put out the statement. Then the bomb-thrower-in-chief weighed in. At a press briefing just hours later, Trump contradicted his own intelligence officials and claimed that he had seen classified information indicating that the virus had come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Asked what the evidence was, he said, I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. Trump's premature statement poisoned the waters for anyone seeking an honest answer to the question of where COVID-19 came from. According to Pottinger, there was an antibody response within the government in which any discussion of a possible lab origin was linked to destructive nativist posturing. The revulsion extended to the international science community, whose maddening silence frustrated you. He recalls, Anyone who dares speak out would be ostracized. 5. Too Risky to Pursue The idea of a lab leak first came to NSC officials not from hawkish Trumpists, but from Chinese social media users who began sharing their suspicions as early as January 2020. Then, in February, a research paper co-authored by two Chinese scientists based at separate Wuhan universities appeared online as a preprint. It tackled a fundamental question. How did a novel bat coronavirus get to a major metropolis of 11 million people in central China in the dead of winter when most bats were hibernating and turn a market where bats weren't sold into the epicenter of an outbreak? The paper offered an answer. We screened the area around the seafood market and identified two laboratories conducting research on bat coronavirus. The first was the Wuhan Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which sat just 280 meters from the Huanan market and had been known to collect hundreds of bat samples. The second was the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The paper came to a staggeringly blunt conclusion about COVID-19. The killer coronavirus probably originated from a laboratory in Wuhan. Almost as soon as the paper appeared on the internet, it disappeared, but not before U.S. government officials took note. By then, Pottinger had approved a COVID-19 origins team run by the NSC directorate that oversaw issues related to weapons of mass destruction. A longtime Asia expert and former journalist, Pottinger purposefully kept the team small, because there were so many people within the government wholly discounting the possibility of a lab leak, he said. In addition, many leading experts had either received or approved funding for gain-of-function research. Their conflicted status, said Pottinger, 
had the effect of contaminating the shot at having an impartial inquiry. As they combed open sources as well as classified information, the team soon stumbled on a 2015 research paper by Shi Zhongli and the University of North Carolina epidemiologist Ralph Barrick, proving that the spike protein of a novel coronavirus could infect human cells. Using mice as subjects, they inserted the protein from a Chinese Rufus horseshoe bat virus into the molecular structure of the SARS virus from 2002, creating a new infectious pathogen. This gain-of-function experiment was so fraught that the authors flagged the danger themselves, writing, Scientific review panels may deem similar studies too risky to pursue. In fact, the study was intended to raise an alarm and warn the world of a potential risk of SARS-CoV reemergence from viruses currently circulating in bat populations. The paper's acknowledgments cited funding from the U.S. National Institutes of Health and from a nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance, which had parceled out grant money from the U.S. Agency for International Development. EcoHealth Alliance is run by Peter Dazak, the zoologist who helped organize the Lancet Statement. That a genetically engineered virus might have escaped from the WIV was one alarming scenario but it could also be possible for a natural virus collected in the field to leak from a lab. The NSC investigators found ready evidence that China's labs were not as safe as advertised. Shi herself had publicly acknowledged that, until the pandemic, all of her team's coronavirus research, some involving live SARS-like viruses, had been conducted in less secure BSL-3 and even BSL-2 laboratories. In 2018, a delegation of American diplomats reported that a shortage of highly trained technicians and clear protocols at the WIV's new BSL-4 lab threatened its safe operations. The issues had not stopped the WIV's leadership from declaring the lab ready for research on Class 4 pathogens, P4, among which are the most virulent viruses that pose a high risk of aerosolized person-to-person transmission. On February 14, 2020, to the surprise of NSC officials, President Xi Jinping of China announced a plan to fast-track a new biosecurity law to tighten safety procedures throughout the country's laboratories. Was this a response to confidential information? In the early weeks of the pandemic, it didn't seem crazy to wonder if this thing came out of a lab, Pottinger reflected. Apparently, it didn't seem crazy to Shi either. A Scientific American article, first published in March 2020, for which she was interviewed, described how her lab had been the first to sequence the virus in those terrible first weeks. It also recounted how she frantically went through her own lab's records from the past few years to check for any mishandling of experimental materials, especially during disposal. Shi breathed a sigh of relief when the results came back, None of the sequences matched those of the viruses her team had sampled from bat caves. That really took a load off my mind, she said. I had not slept a wink for days. As the NSC tracked those disparate clues, U.S. government virologists advising them flagged one study first submitted in April 2020. Eleven of its 23 co-authors worked for the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, the Chinese Army's Medical Research Institute. 
Using the gene-editing technology known as CRISPR, the researchers had engineered mice with humanized lungs, then studied their susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2. As the NSC officials worked backward from the date of publication to establish a timeline for the study, it became clear that the mice had been engineered sometime in the summer of 2019, before the pandemic even started. The NSC officials were left wondering, had the Chinese military been running viruses through humanized mouse models to see which might be infectious to humans? Believing they had uncovered important evidence in favor of the lab leak hypothesis, the NSC investigators began reaching out to other agencies. The response was very negative, said Anthony Ruggiero, the NSC's senior director for counterproliferation and biodefense. We were dismissed. 6. Sticklers for Accuracy By the summer of 2020, Gilles Dimanouf was spending up to four hours a day researching the origins of COVID-19. He began to receive anonymous calls and noticed strange activity on his computer, which he attributed to Chinese government surveillance. We are being monitored for sure, he says. He moved his work to the encrypted platforms Signal and ProtonMail. As they posted their findings, the drastic researchers attracted new allies. Among the most prominent was Jamie Metzel, who launched a blog on April 16th that became a go-to site for examining the lab leak hypothesis. Metzel sits on the World Health Organization's Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing and served in the Clinton administration as the NSC's Director for Multilateral Affairs. In his first post, he made clear that he had no definitive proof and noted, In no way do I seek to support or align myself with any activities that may be considered unfair, dishonest, nationalistic, racist, bigoted, or biased in any way. On December 11, 2020, Dimanouf, a stickler for accuracy, reached out to Metzel to alert him to a mistake on his blog. The 2004 SARS lab escape in Beijing, Dimanouf pointed out, had led to 11 infections, not four. Dimanouf was impressed by Metzel's immediate willingness to correct the information. From that time, we started working together. Metzel, in turn, was in touch with the Paris Group, a collective of more than 30 skeptical scientific experts who met by Zoom once a month for hours-long meetings to hash out emerging clues. Alina Chan, a young molecular biologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, found that early sequences of the virus showed very little evidence of mutation. Had the virus jumped from animals to humans, one would expect to see numerous adaptations, as was true in the 2002 SARS outbreak. To Chan, it appeared that SARS-CoV-2 was already pre-adapted to human transmission, she wrote in a preprint paper in May 2020. But perhaps the most startling find was made by an anonymous drastic researcher known on Twitter as The Seeker 268. The Seeker, as it turns out, is a young former science teacher from India. He had begun plugging keywords into the China National Knowledge Infrastructure, a website that houses papers from 2,000 Chinese journals, and running the results through Google Translate. One day that May, he fished up a thesis from 2013 
written by a master's student in Kunming, China. The thesis opened an extraordinary window into a bat-filled mine shaft in Yunnan province and raised sharp questions about what Shi had failed to mention in the course of making her denials. 7. The Mojiang Miners In 2012, six miners in the lush mountains of Mojiang County in southern Yunnan province were assigned an unenviable task to shovel out a thick carpet of bat feces from the floor of a mine shaft. After weeks of work, the miners became gravely ill and were sent to the hospital at the Kunming Medical University in Yunnan's capital. Their symptoms of cough, fever, and labored breathing rang alarm bells in a country that had suffered through a viral SARS outbreak a decade earlier. The hospital called in a pulmonologist, Zhong Nanshan, who had played a prominent role in treating SARS patients. Zhong, according to the 2013 master's thesis, immediately suspected a viral infection. He asked what kind of bat had produced the guano. The answer, the Rufus horseshoe bat, the same species implicated in the first SARS outbreak. Within months, three of the six miners were dead. The eldest, who was 63, died first. The disease was acute and fierce, the thesis noted. It concluded, the bat that caused the six patients to fall ill was the Chinese Rufus horseshoe bat. Blood samples were sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which found that they were positive for SARS antibodies, a later Chinese dissertation documented. But there was a mystery at the heart of the diagnosis. Bat coronaviruses were not known to harm humans. What was so different about the strains from inside the cave? To find out, teams of researchers from across China and beyond traveled to the abandoned mine shaft to collect viral samples from bats, musk shrews, and rats. In an October 2013 Nature study, Shi reported a key discovery. Certain bat viruses could potentially infect humans without first jumping to an intermediate animal. By isolating a live SARS-like bat coronavirus for the first time, her team found it could enter human cells through a protein called the ACE2 receptor. In subsequent studies in 2014 and 2016, Shi and her colleagues continued studying samples of bat viruses collected from the mine shaft, hoping to figure out which one had infected the miners. The bats were bristling with coronaviruses, but only one closely resembled SARS. The researchers named it RABT-CoV-4991. On February 3, 2020, with the COVID-19 outbreak already spreading beyond China, Shi and several colleagues published a paper noting that the SARS-CoV-2 virus's genetic code was almost 80% identical to that of SARS-CoV, which caused the 2002 outbreak. But they also reported that it was 96.2% identical to a coronavirus sequence in their possession called RATG13, which was previously detected in Yunnan province. They concluded that RATG13 was the closest known relative to SARS-CoV-2. In the following months, as researchers around the world hunted for any known bat virus that might be a progenitor of SARS-CoV-2, Shi offered shifting and sometimes contradictory accounts of where RATG-13 had come from. 
several teams, including a group of drastic researchers, soon realized that RATG-13 appeared identical to RABT-CoV-4991, the virus from the shaft where the miners fell ill in 2012 with what looked like COVID-19. In July, as questions mounted, Shi told Science Magazine that her lab had renamed the sample for clarity. But to skeptics, the renaming exercise looked like an effort to hide the sample's connection to the Mojiang mine. Their questions multiplied the following month when Shi, Dazak, and their colleagues published an account of 630 novel coronaviruses they had sampled between 2010 and 2015. Combing through the supplementary data, drastic researchers were stunned to find eight more viruses from the Mojang mine that were closely related to RATG-13 but had not been flagged in the account. Alina Chan of the Broad Institute called the omission mind-boggling. In October 2020, as questions about the Mojang mineshaft intensified, a team of journalists from the BBC tried to access the mine itself. They were tailed by plainclothes police officers and found the road blocked by a broken-down truck. Shi, by now facing growing scrutiny from the International Press Corps, told the BBC, I've just downloaded the Kunming Hospital University's students' master's thesis and read it. The conclusion is neither based on evidence nor logic, but it's used by conspiracy theorists to doubt me. 8. The Gain-of-Function Debate On January 3, 2020, CDC Director Robert Redfield got a phone call from his counterpart, George Fu Gao, head of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Gao described the appearance of a mysterious new pneumonia, apparently limited to people exposed at a market in Wuhan. Gao assured him there was no human-to-human transmission, says Redfield, who nevertheless urged him to test more widely. That effort prompted a tearful return call. Many cases had nothing to do with the market, Gao admitted. The virus appeared to be jumping from person to person. A far scarier scenario. Redfield immediately thought of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. A team of specialists could rule it out as a source of the outbreak in just a few weeks by testing researchers there for antibodies. Redfield repeatedly offered to send help, but Chinese officials didn't respond to his overtures. Redfield, a virologist by training, was suspicious of the WIV in part because he'd been steeped in the years-long battle over gain-of-function research. The debate engulfed the virology community in 2011 after Ron Fouché, a researcher in Rotterdam, Netherlands, announced that he had genetically altered the H5N1 avian influenza strain to make it transmissible among ferrets, who are genetically closer to humans than mice. He declared it probably one of the most dangerous viruses you could make. In the ensuing uproar, scientists battled over the risks and benefits of such research. Those in favor claimed it could help prevent pandemics by highlighting potential risks and accelerating vaccine development. Critics argued that creating pathogens that didn't exist in nature ran the risk of unleashing them. 
In October 2014, the Obama administration imposed a moratorium on new funding for gain-of-function research projects that could make influenza, MERS, or SARS viruses more virulent or transmissible. But the moratorium carved out an exception for cases deemed urgently necessary to protect the public health or national security. In the first year of the Trump administration, the moratorium was lifted and replaced with a review system called the HHS-P3CO framework for potential pandemic pathogen care and oversight. It put the onus for ensuring the safety of any such research on the federal department or agency funding it. This left the review process shrouded in secrecy. The names of reviewers are not released, and the details of the experiments to be considered are largely secret, said the Harvard epidemiologist Mark Lipsitch. An NIH spokesperson told Vanity Fair that information about individual unfunded applications is not public to preserve confidentiality. Inside the NIH, which funded such research, the P3CO framework was largely met with shrugs and eye rolls, said a longtime agency official. If you ban gain-of-function research, you ban all of virology. He added, ever since the moratorium, everyone's gone wink-wink and just done gain-of-function research anyway. EcoHealth Alliance, the New York City-based nonprofit headed by Dazak, has the laudable goal of preventing the outbreak of emerging diseases by safeguarding ecosystems. In May 2014, five months before the moratorium on gain-of-function research was announced, EcoHealth secured a grant from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases of roughly $3.7 million, which it allocated in part to various entities engaged in collecting bat samples and performing gain-of-function experiments to see which animal viruses could potentially jump to humans. The grant was not halted under the moratorium or the P3CO framework. By 2018, EcoHealth Alliance was pulling in up to $15 million a year from an array of federal agencies, including the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, according to tax exemption forms filed with the New York Attorney General's Charities Bureau. Shu Zhengli herself listed U.S. government grant support of more than $1.2 million on her curriculum vitae, $665,000 from the NIH between 2014 and 2019, and $559,500 over the same period from USAID. At least some of those funds were rooted through EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance's practice of divvying up large government grants into smaller subgrants for individual labs and institutions gave it enormous sway within the field of virology. The sums at stake allow it to purchase a lot of Omerta from the labs it supports, said Richard Ebright of Rutgers. EcoHealth Alliance and Dazak declined to comment. As the pandemic raged, the collaboration between EcoHealth Alliance and the WIV wound up in the crosshairs of the Trump administration. At a White House COVID-19 press briefing on April 17, 2020, a reporter from the conspiratorial right-wing media outlet Newsmax asked Trump a factually inaccurate question about a $3.7 million NIH grant to a BSL-4 lab in China. Why would the U.S. give a grant like that to China, 
the reporter asked. Trump responded, We will end that grant very quickly, adding, Who was president then, I wonder? A week later, an NIH official notified Dazak in writing that his grant had been terminated. The order had come from the White House, Anthony Fauci later testified before a congressional committee. The decision fueled a firestorm. 81 Nobel laureates in science denounced the decision in an open letter to Trump health officials, and 60 Minutes ran a segment focused on the Trump administration's short-sighted politicization of science. The British-born Dazak, 55, appeared to be the victim of a political hit job orchestrated to blame China, Fauci, and scientists in general for the pandemic while distracting from the Trump administration's bungled response. He's basically a wonderful, decent human being, said the NIH official. To see this happening to him, it really kills me. In July, the NIH attempted to backtrack. It reinstated the grant, but suspended its research activities until EcoHealth Alliance fulfilled seven conditions, some of which went beyond the nonprofit's purview and seemed to stray into tinfoil hat territory. They included providing information on the apparent disappearance of a WIV researcher who was rumored on social media to be patient zero. But conspiracy-minded Trump officials weren't the only ones looking askance at Dazak. Ebright likened Dazak's model of research, bringing samples from a remote area to an urban one, then sequencing and growing viruses and attempting to genetically modify them to see if they could become more virulent, to looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. It soon emerged, based on emails obtained by a freedom of information group called U.S. Right to Know, that Dazak had not only signed, but organized the influential Lancet statement with the intention of concealing his role and creating the impression of scientific unanimity. Under the subject line, No Need for You to Sign the Statement, Ralph, he wrote to two scientists, including UNC's Ralph Barrick, who had collaborated with Shi on the gain-of-function study that created a coronavirus capable of infecting human cells. You, me, and him should not sign this statement, so it has some distance from us and therefore doesn't work in a counterproductive way. Dazak added, We'll then put it out in a way that doesn't link it back to our collaboration so we maximize an independent voice. Barrick agreed, writing back, Otherwise it looks self-serving and we lose impact. Barrick did not sign. In addition to Dazak, at least six other signers had either worked at or had been funded by EcoHealth Alliance. The statement ended with a declaration of objectivity. We declare no competing interests. Dazak mobilized so quickly for a reason, said Jamie Metzel of the WHO Advisory Committee. If zoonosis was the origin, it was a validation of his life work. But if the pandemic started as part of a lab leak, it had the potential to do to virology what Three Mile Island and Chernobyl did to nuclear science. It could mire the field indefinitely in moratoriums and funding restrictions. 9. Dueling Memos In the fall of 2020, the State Department team got a tip from a foreign source. Key information was likely sitting in the U.S. intelligence community's own files, unanalyzed. 
in November, that lead turned up classified information that was absolutely arresting and shocking, said a former State Department official. Three WIV researchers, all connected with gain-of-function research on coronaviruses, had fallen ill in November 2019 and appeared to have visited the hospital with symptoms similar to COVID-19, three government officials told Vanity Fair. While it is not clear what had sickened them, these were not the janitors, said the former State Department official. They were active researchers. The dates were among the most arresting part of the picture because they are smack where they would be if this was the origin. The reaction inside the State Department was, holy shit, one former senior official recalled. We should probably tell our bosses. An intelligence analyst working with investigator David Asher turned up a report that outlined why the lab leak hypothesis was plausible. It had been written in May by researchers at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which performs national security research for the Department of Energy. But it appeared to have been buried within the classified collection system. Now the officials were beginning to suspect that someone was actually hiding materials supportive of a lab leak explanation. Why did my contractor have to pour through documents? Acting Assistant Secretary Denano wondered. Their frustration crested in December when they finally briefed Chris Ford, Acting Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. He seemed so hostile to their probe that they viewed him as a blinkered functionary bent on whitewashing China's malfeasance. But Ford, who had long been a China hawk, told Vanity Fair that he saw his job as protecting the integrity of any inquiry into COVID-19's origins that fell under his purview. Going with stuff that makes us look like the crackpot brigade would backfire, he believed. There was another reason for his hostility. He'd already heard about the investigation from interagency colleagues rather than from the team itself, and the secrecy left him with a spidey sense. He wondered, had someone launched an unaccountable investigation with the goal of achieving a desired result? He was not the only one with concerns. As one senior government official with knowledge of the State Department's investigation said, they were writing this for certain customers in the Trump administration. After listening to the investigators' findings, a State Department bioweapons expert thought they were bonkers, Ford recalled. The State Department team, for its part, believed that Ford was the one trying to impose a preconceived conclusion, that COVID-19 had a natural origin. A week later, one of them attended the meeting where Christopher Park, who worked under Ford, allegedly advised those present not to draw attention to U.S. funding of -of gain-of-function research. With deep distrust simmering, the State Department team convened a panel of experts to confidentially red-team the lab leak hypothesis. The idea was to pummel the theory and see if it still stood. The panel took place on the evening of January 7th, one day after the insurrection at the Capitol. By then, Ford had announced his plan to resign. Twenty-nine people logged onto a secure video call that lasted three hours, according to meeting minutes obtained by Vanity Fair. The scientific experts included Ralph Barrick, Alina Chan, and the Stanford microbiologist David Relman. Asher invited Stephen Quay, a breast cancer specialist who'd founded a biopharmaceutical company 
to present a statistical analysis weighing the probability of a lab origin versus a natural one. Scissoring Quay's analysis, Barrick noted that its calculations failed to account for many bat coronavirus sequences that exist in nature but remain unknown. When a State Department advisor asked Quay whether he'd ever done a similar analysis, he replied there's a first time for everything, according to the meeting minutes. Although they questioned Quay's findings, the scientists saw other reasons to suspect a lab origin. Part of the WIV's mission was to sample the natural world and provide early warnings of human-capable viruses, said Relman. The 2012 infections of the six miners was worthy of banner headlines at the time. Yet those cases had never been reported to the WHO. Barrick added that if SARS-CoV-2 had come from a strong animal reservoir, one might have expected to see multiple introduction events rather than a single outbreak, though he cautioned that it didn't prove this was an escape from a laboratory. That prompted Asher to ask, could this not have been partially bioengineered? Ford was so troubled that he stayed up all night summarizing his concerns. The next morning, he emailed a four-page memo to multiple State Department officials criticizing the panel's lack of data. He added, I would also caution you against suggesting that there is anything inherently suspicious and suggestive of biological warfare activity about People's Liberation Army, PLA, involvement at WIV on classified projects since the U.S. Army has been deeply involved in virus research in the United States for many years. Donano sent a five-page rebuttal to Ford's memo the next day, January 9th. He accused Ford of misrepresenting the panel's efforts and enumerated the obstacles his team had faced. Apprehension and contempt from the technical staff. Warnings not to investigate the origins of COVID-19 for fear of opening a can of worms. And a complete lack of responses to briefings and presentations. A year's worth of mutual suspicions had finally spilled out into dueling memos. The State Department investigators pushed on, determined to declassify information that had been vetted by the intelligence community. On January 15th, five days before Biden's inauguration, the State Department released a fact sheet disclosing key information that several researchers at the WIV had fallen ill with COVID-19-like symptoms in autumn 2019, before the first identified case, and that researchers there had collaborated on secret projects with China's military and engaged in classified research, including laboratory animal experiments, on behalf of the Chinese military since at least 2017. The statement withstood aggressive suspicion, as one former State Department official said, and the Biden administration has not walked it back. I was very pleased to see Pompeo's statement come through, said Ford who personally signed off on a draft of the fact sheet. I was so relieved that they were using real reporting that had been vetted and cleared. 10. Fact-Finding in Wuhan In early July 2020, the WHO invited the U.S. government to recommend experts for a fact-finding mission to Wuhan. Questions about the WHO's independence from China the country's secrecy, and the raging pandemic had turned the anticipated mission into a minefield of international grudges and suspicion. 
the U.S. government submitted the names of three experts. None were chosen. Instead, only one representative from the U.S. made the cut. Peter Dazak. It had been evident from the start that China would control who could come and what they could see. In July, when the WHO sent member countries a draft of the terms governing the mission, the document was titled, CHN and WHO Agreed Final Version, suggesting that China had pre-approved its contents. Part of the fault lay with the Trump administration, which had failed to counter China's control over the scope of the mission when it was being hammered out two months earlier. The resolution, forged at the WHO's decision-making body, the World Health Assembly, called not for a full inquiry into the origins of the pandemic, but instead for a mission to identify the zoonotic source of the virus. While the Trump administration was huffing and puffing, some really important things were happening around the WHO, and the U.S. didn't have a voice, said Metzl. On January 14, 2021, Dazak and 12 other international experts arrived in Wuhan to join 17 Chinese experts and an entourage of government minders. The inquiry was more propaganda than probe. The team saw almost no raw data, only the Chinese government analysis of it. They paid one visit to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they met with Shu Zhongli. One obvious demand would have been access to the WIV's database of some 22,000 virus samples and sequences, which had been taken offline. At an event in London on March 10th, Dazak was asked whether the group had made such a request. He said there was no need. Shi had stated that the WIV took down the database due to hacking attempts during the pandemic. Absolutely reasonable, Dazak said. As you know, a lot of this work has been conducted with EcoHealth Alliance. We do basically know what's in those databases. There is no evidence of viruses closer to SARS-CoV-2 than RATG-13 in those databases. In fact, the database had been taken offline on September 12, 2019, three months before the official start of the pandemic, a detail uncovered by Gilles Dimenouf and two drastic colleagues. The Chinese and international experts concluded their mission by voting with a show of hands on which origin scenario seemed most probable. Direct transmission from bat to human. Possible to likely. Transmission through an intermediate animal. Likely to very likely. Transmission through frozen food. Possible. Transmission through a laboratory incident. Extremely unlikely. On March 30, 2021, the mission's 120-page report was released. Discussion of a lab leak took up less than two pages. The report recounted how Shi rebutted conspiracy theories and told the visiting team of experts that there had been no reports of unusual diseases, none diagnosed, and all staff tested negative for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. Her statement directly contradicted the findings summarized in the January 15th State Department fact sheet. That was a willful lie by people who know it's not true, a former national security official said of Schur's claim. An internal U.S. government analysis of the mission's report obtained by Vanity Fair found it to be inaccurate and even contradictory. Regarding the four possible origins, the analysis stated, 
the report does not include a description of how these hypotheses were generated, would be tested, or how a decision would be made between them to decide that one is more likely than another. It added that a possible laboratory incident received only a cursory look. The report's most surprising critic was WHO Director Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus of Ethiopia, who appeared to acknowledge the report's shortcomings at a press event the day of its release. As far as WHO is concerned, all hypotheses remain on the table, he said. We have not yet found the source of the virus, and we must continue to follow the science. His statement reflected monumental courage, said Metzl. The WHO declined to make Tedros available for an interview. By then, an international coalition of roughly two dozen scientists, among them Dimonuf and Ebright, had found a way around what Metzl described as a wall of rejections by scientific journals. With Metzl's guidance, they began publishing open letters. Their second, issued on April 7th, condemned the mission report and called for a full investigation into the origin of COVID-19. It was picked up widely by national newspapers. A growing number of people were demanding to know what exactly had gone on inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Were the claims in the State Department's fact sheet of sick researchers and secret military research accurate? Metzl had managed to question Schur directly a week before the release of the mission report. In a March 23rd online lecture by Schur, hosted by Rutgers Medical School, Metzl asked if she had full knowledge of all the research being done at the WIV and all the viruses held there, and if the U.S. government was correct that classified military research had taken place. She responded, We heard the rumors that it's claimed in our laboratory we have some project, blah blah, with army, blah blah, these kinds of rumors, but this is not correct. A major argument against the lab leak theory hinged on the presumption that the WIV was not hiding any virus samples that are closer cousins to SARS-CoV-2. In Metzl's view, if Shi was lying about the military's involvement or anything else, all bets were off. 11. Inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology In January 2019, the WIV issued a press release hailing Schur's election as a fellow of the prestigious American Academy of Microbiology, the latest milestone in a glittering scientific career. Schur was a fixture at international virology conferences thanks to her state-of-the-art work, said James LeDuc, the longtime director of the BSL-4 Galveston National Laboratory in Texas. At the international meetings he helped organize, Schur was a regular along with Barrick. She's a charming person, completely fluent in English and French, said Le Duc. Shu's journey to the top of the virology field had begun with treks to remote bat caves in southernmost China. In 2006, she trained at the BSL-4 jean Merieu in Serme laboratory in Lyon, France. She was named director of the WIV's Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases in 2011 and its BSL-3 lab director in 2013. It's hard to think of anyone, anywhere, who was better prepared to meet the challenge of COVID-19. On December 30, 2019, at around 7 p.m., Shu received a call from her boss, 
the director of the WIV, according to an account she gave to Scientific American. He wanted her to investigate several cases of patients hospitalized with a mysterious pneumonia. Drop whatever you are doing. The next day, her team became one of the first to sequence and identify the ailment as a novel SARS-related coronavirus. By January 21st, she had been appointed to lead the Hubei Province COVID-19 Emergency Scientific Research Expert Group. In a country that exalted its scientists, she had reached a pinnacle. But her ascent came at a cost. There was reason to believe she was hardly free to speak her mind or follow a scientific path that didn't conform to China's party line. Though Shi had planned to share isolated samples of the virus with her friend Le Duc, Beijing officials blocked her. And by mid-January, a team of military scientists led by China's top virologist and biochemical expert, Major General Chen Wei, had set up operations inside the WIV. With bizarre conspiracy theories and legitimate doubts swirling around her, she began lashing out at critics. I, Shi Zhengli, guarantee on my life that it has nothing to do with our lab, she wrote in a February 2nd post on WeChat, a popular social media app in China. May I offer some advice to those people who believe and spread bad media rumors? Shut your dirty mouths. Though Shi has portrayed the WIV as a transparent hub of international research beset by false allegations, the State Department's January fact sheet painted a different picture, of a facility conducting classified military research and hiding it, which Shi denies. But a former national security official who reviewed U.S. classified materials told Vanity Fair that inside the WIV, Military and civilian researchers are doing animal research in the same frickin' space. While that, in and of itself, does not prove a lab leak, Shi's alleged lies about it are absolutely material, said a former State Department official. It speaks to the honesty and credibility of the WIV that they kept this secret. Neither Shi nor the director of the Wuhan Institute of Virology responded to multiple requests for comment by email and phone. As officials at the NSC tracked collaborations between the WIV and military scientists, which stretch back 20 years, with 51 co-authored papers, they also took note of a book flagged by a college student in Hong Kong. Written by a team of 18 authors and editors, 11 of whom worked at China's Air Force Medical University, the book, Unnatural Origin of SARS and New Species of Man-Made Viruses as Genetic Bioweapons, explores issues surrounding the development of bioweapons capabilities. The book contains some alarming practical tradecraft. Bioweapon aerosol attacks are best conducted during dawn, dusk, night, or cloudy weather because ultraviolet rays can damage the pathogens. One of the book's editors has collaborated on 12 scientific papers with researchers at the WIV. The inflammatory idea of SARS-CoV-2 as bioweapon has gained traction as an alt-right conspiracy theory. But civilian research under Shi's supervision that is yet to be made public raises more realistic concerns. Shi's own comments to a science journal and grant information available on a Chinese government database suggest that in the past three years, her team has tested two novel but undisclosed bat coronaviruses on humanized mice to gauge their infectiousness.
in April 2021 in an editorial in the journal Infectious Diseases and Immunity. Shi resorted to a familiar tactic to contain the cloud of suspicion enveloping her. She invoked scientific consensus, just as the Lancet statement had. The scientific community strongly dismisses these unproven and misleading speculations and generally accepts that SARS-CoV-2 has a natural origin, she wrote. Butcher's editorial had no muzzling effect. On May 14th, in a statement published in Science magazine, 18 prominent scientists called for a transparent, objective investigation into COVID-19's origins, noting we must take hypotheses about both natural and laboratory spillovers seriously. Among the signers was Ralph Barrick. Fifteen months earlier, he had worked behind the scenes to help Peter Dazak stage-manage the Lancet statement. The scientific consensus had been smashed to smithereens. Twelve. Out of the Shadows By the spring of 2021, the debate over COVID-19's origins had become so noxious that death threats were flying in both directions. In a CNN interview on March 26th, former CDC Director Redfield made a candid admission. I still think the most likely etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory, you know, escaped. Redfield added that he believed the release was an accident, not an intentional act. After the interview aired, death threats flooded his inbox. The vitriol came not just from strangers who thought he was being racially insensitive, but also from prominent scientists, some of whom used to be his friends. One said he should wither and die. Dazak was getting death threats, too, some from QAnon conspirators. Inside the U.S. government, meanwhile, the lab leak hypothesis had survived the transition from Trump to Biden. On April 15th, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines told the House Intelligence Committee that two plausible theories were being weighed, a lab accident or natural emergence. Even so, lab leak talk was mostly confined to right-wing news outlets through April, gleefully flogged by Tucker Carlson and studiously avoided by most of the mainstream media. The ground began to shift on May 2nd when Nicholas Wade, a former New York Times science writer known in part for writing a controversial book about race, published a lengthy essay on Medium. In it, he analyzed the scientific clues both for and against a lab leak and excoriated the media for its failure to report on the dueling hypotheses. Wade devoted a full section to the furin cleavage site, a distinctive segment of SARS-CoV-2's genetic code that makes the virus more infectious by allowing it to efficiently enter human cells. Within the scientific community, one thing leapt off the page. Wade quoted one of the world's most famous microbiologists, David Baltimore, saying that he believed the furin cleavage site was the smoking gun for the origin of the virus. Baltimore a Nobel laureate, was about as far from Steve Bannon and conspiracy theorists as it was possible to get. With questions growing, NIH Director Francis Collins released a statement on May 19th asserting that neither NIH nor NIAID have ever approved any grant that would have supported gain-of-function research on coronaviruses that would have increased their transmissibility or lethality for humans. On May 24th, the World Health Assembly kicked off its annual conference. 
In the weeks leading up to it, a parade of high-profile stories broke, including two front-page reports in the Wall Street Journal. Not surprisingly, the Chinese government fired back during the conference, saying that it would not participate in further inquiries within its borders. On May 28th, two days after Biden announced his 90-day intelligence review, the Senate passed a unanimous resolution, which Jamie Metzl helped shape, calling on the WHO to launch a comprehensive investigation into the origins of the virus. Will we ever know the truth? David Relman of Stanford has been advocating for an investigation like the 9-11 Commission to examine COVID-19's origins. But 9-11 took place on one day, he said, whereas this has so many different manifestations, consequences, responses across nations. All of that makes it a hundred-dimensional problem. The bigger problem is that so much time has gone by. With every passing day, he said, the world ages and things get moved and biological signals degrade. China obviously bears responsibility for stonewalling investigators. Whether it did so out of sheer authoritarian habit or because it had a lab leak to hide is, and may always be, unknown. The United States deserves a healthy share of blame as well. Thanks to their unprecedented mendacity and race-baiting, Trump and his allies had no credibility. And the practice of funding risky research via cutouts like EcoHealth Alliance and meshed leading virologists in conflicts of interest at the exact moment their expertise was most needed. Now, at least, there appears to be the prospect of a level inquiry the kind Dimenuf and Metzl had wanted from the start. We needed to create a space where all of the hypotheses could be considered, Metzl said. If the lab leak explanation proves accurate, history may credit Dimenuf and his fellow doubters for breaking the dam. Not that they have any intention of stopping. They are now knee-deep in examining the WIV's construction orders, sewage output, and cell phone traffic the thought driving Paris Group co-founder Virginie Cotier forward is simple. There are unanswered questions, she says, and a few human beings know the answers. Well, this brings us neatly to, to the headline claims. And what I'd like you to do is tell uh, our audience yeah. what your, as Pfizer's former POP, global chief science officer for the company in the world, in, in dealing respiratory. with respiratory illnesses, right, dealing with respiratory illnesses, yeah. What are the claims, the headline claims you're making about what we've learned about COVID? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll do, I'll do it in three things. Uh, first, you've been lied to about the magnitude of the threat represented by this entity called SARS-CoV-2 and the disease COVID-19. Been lied to about that uh, in every way, shape, and form. And we can go. You mean details. it's not as threatening as we've been told? Uh, basically. I'll, I'll come back to it, but the bottom line is we've been lied to and it's deliberate and they knew it and no action was needed whatsoever other than if you're sick, stay home. That's it. And so, so they lied to us and made us very frightened of something that is not, there is no unusual new threat in your environment at all. Um, nothing unusual. The only things you should be frightened of are your government's reactions to this alleged threat and the vaccines themselves. So the second part of my claim is that all the measures they imposed upon us made us take, like locking down, um, uh, masking, things like that. Every one of those 
is ineffective, absolutely ineffective. And again, I'll come to the detail. They knew that before they told us to do it. And I can explain why I'm sure they knew. And then finally, uh, you know, you heard, I'm sure, quite early on, the only way out of this nightmare is to vaccinate the whole world. And, you know, here are these safe and effective vaccines. Well, one, it was never necessary to vaccinate the world, even if you had wanted to use them, and even if they were safe and effective. But they were neither effective nor safe. So I'm afraid everything is a lie, literally. Um, everything is a lie. And well, so, so let, me, let me get this straight. For, yeah. Because people are here, people may not realise what they just heard. Yeah. So let's make it very clear for everybody, the claims you make. And we're going to get to the evidence. But just for our audience, Pfizer's top science officer globally on respiratory illnesses is saying what we were told about the danger levels of COVID-19 is a lie. Yeah. It's not as dangerous as we were told and no. we didn't need to do anything. All of the measures that government put forward to try and address it were wrong yeah. and, in your view, counterproductive. Yeah, they definitely didn't and work and they had consequences, some of them awful. Negative. Yeah. And the vaccines, you're saying, don't work. No. They're they not vaccines. They, I mean, I, if someone finds a little corner that says there's a slight benefit in someone over 85 or something, possibly, the main problem with them is there's, there's no dose where you can get obvious signs of benefit without attendant harms that are much greater at a population level than any possible benefit. So, and in fact, they play together because the, because the threat to the population from the virus is so normal. It's so similar to every day or every year seasonal flu. It's so similar to that, that, uh, uh, the, as I say, the best approach would have been to have done nothing at all other than say, there might be a new, it seems like there's a new bug coming through. We're not certain yet, might be a little bit worse than flu. Perhaps it was a little bit worse, but it wasn't like tenfold or a hundredfold. There, there was no justification for, to do anything different than you would every year when, when I, I'm afraid we know this, that there are, there are winter illnesses that we call, you know, flu, uh, virus mediated respiratory illnesses. I know there's controversy nowadays as to whether that's true, but there are definitely seasonal respiratory illnesses that uh, tend to, I'm afraid they, they see off, they kill a small fraction of the oldest and sickest in our community. They've done it forever in the, uh, they've done it forever. And that's what happens. Uh, that, that's what happens. And, and so when parliament, when, when parliamentary record, it's official that the infection fatality rate, the IFR yeah. for COVID is similar to the flu at 0.96%. You're independently saying that that demonstrates that the virus was like the flu and, in fact, may well have been the seasonal influenza. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, again, I know this dispute about whether this virus exists separately from other entities called viruses. What we can say is that, is that people who are um, apparently infected, the fraction of them that die... Is the almost is pretty much the same fraction, a small fraction, roughly one in a thousand, uh, as for other seasonal uh, you know, winter viruses. And now, Mike, does that explain for us why, when we were in the peak of COVID, mm. flu deaths were flatlined at near zero because yeah. they were basically COVID deaths? Is that what you're saying? I, I, I think that's very likely. I, the thing that one, I would just point out to people if you. Here's, here's something that's very important for you to know. It's really important. Uh, I'm not triumphant that everything I've put out is a lie. It doesn't matter if 11 of them, I've written 12, and someone's written to me with another couple. 
it's not important to me that I'm right about all 12 or 10 of them or whatever. Here's the correct number, my dear and listeners. Here's the correct number of important statements public health officials and politicians should tell you about some threats and things you should do about it. And the answer is zero. There shouldn't be lies. So what's the correct number of lies uh, that they should tell you? Zero. Be none. Zero. And so I think there's 12 here. If it turns out I've over-egged the pudding and only 10 of the 12 are lies, it doesn't mean Eden's thesis has fallen to bits. It means 10 of them are lies. That's and 10 the correct number is zero. They shouldn't be lying yeah. to you. They shouldn't be telling yeah, you yeah, yeah. Uh, that this is such a fearful thing. You need to you know, not see your relatives, uh, close your businesses, you know, uh, and, and whatever. only go out for exercise once a day, all this stuff, all that rubbish that they told us. Oh, and uh, uh, everyone, anyone could represent a threat. You could all be carrying this virus and so you might infect anyone else and kill them, you know, save granny, all this sort of stuff. Uh, that the right number of lies is zero. And you've identified 12. We're yeah. going to go through some of the key yeah. ones so, so that we're aware we can structure this properly because I want the audience to follow us step by step. Yeah. I'm going to park vaccines in a moment because that's, I think, because of who you are, the most important one. I'm going to park that for a second because I'm going to spend a bit of time on that. But while we're on the topic of the fact that the, <clears throat> the virus that we were told was COVID may have been, in your theory, in your view, may have been influenza. Could have been. And the deaths that were flatlined, and that's, this is a, not, not in dispute, that there were no flu deaths. And when people were saying that's because of lockdown, you're suggesting those flu deaths could have been the COVID deaths, but certainly COVID's IFR is similar to the flu in parliamentary rec- record at, in Hansard at 0.96. Now, how do we then explain the deaths, that the excess deaths, um, I don't know where their source was from, but I, I, I looked that number up yesterday. Zero point zero nine six, so Sorry, a little yes, bit 0.096. less. A little yes. bit less than zero point one. So if you think of zero point one percent, for those of a uh, not brilliant at maths, I'm not brilliant at maths. So one percent is one in a hundred. So zero point one percent is one in a thousand. So the, the infection fatality ratio, the fraction of a representative set of the population if infected by flu that die, it's about one in a thousand. And that one tends to be 70, 80, 90 years old and usually has several other life-limiting diseases like cancer, hypertension, uh, obesity, and, diabetes. And so, Mike, when people throw these charts at us that state, look, excess deaths this year, yeah. and they, what's, so what's behind those excess deaths or, or were those charts wrong? What, what is your view on that? Uh, well, uh, I, it, we, we can't be, sh- the attribution of cause of death is very problematic. The, for the first yeah, time in history. Yeah, talk us through that. Talk us through that. Yeah, we'll, we'll go through that. But for the first time in history, we said if someone is positive in this test, this PCR test, then we'll say you have a disease, even if you've no symptoms. We've never done that before in history. Uh, diagnosis always starts with symptoms, uh, and then okay, what's the explanation for it? We've never we've never said, oh, you're ill, but you haven't got any symptoms. It's it's absurd this idea. <laughs> you're an asymptomatic COVID nineteen case, and then yeah. if you die within, carriers, you're saying is a myth. Uh, yes, I, well, I, yes and no. It's just we've never classified it. And, and let's say I'm carrying one copy of rhinovirus today, one copy of the virus. Uh, I'm not ill. Uh, I'm not going to become ill. I can't infect anybody else. I've got too little. But what, I'm an asymptomatic rhinovirus sufferer. I've got asymptomatic common cold. You can see it's a problem. You know, so we don't, we, I don't know whether it's strictly incorrect. I would point out we've never done it that way. We've never classified people's respiratory illnesses in that, in that way before. 
but there's a whole body of work now. Oh, you are an asymptomatic case. It's that it means it means you're not ill. You don't have enough virus on board to render you ill, uh, and, and that means you're not infected, infectious. Uh, that's another one of the what's one of the many lies. But in terms mm. of in terms of deaths, so you mentioned deaths. Yeah. Um, if you're recording flu deaths, you, you, that will only be recorded, and you'll see it appearing and disappearing over time in the in the death graphs. If if someone attributes flu as the cause of death, so if they don't, you, then flu could disappear because people choose no longer to attribute the cause of death to influenza, and and the same with COVID deaths. Um, we have this absurd position. Uh, just, just to make it absurd, that if you were positive in this PCR test, so you said you have a COVID test, and say you were run down by a bus two weeks later, apparently that's COVID-19 death. Uh, now, that, that's a ridiculous one, but people do die. Roughly 2% of people admitted to hospital uh, don't come out because you don't generally go to hospital unless you're a bit ill or very ill. So roughly 2%. If you test everybody you know, with a very bad test and you keep testing them with this very bad test, you'll get some positives. 2% of the people admitted will die. You can have COVID deaths forever if you want by, by testing everyone admitted badly enough and often enough. You can get, and then whatever. You can get, it will never go away. If you, if you use this stupid attribution method, it will never go away. But it doesn't mean they died of COVID. My next question is going to be on the PCR tests themselves and the cycle thresholds. On the deaths itself, though, a death within 28 days was the official government diff definition of a COVID death. And you're stating that if you're hit by a bus within those 28 days, if you die from something un- entirely unrelated, but you've been tested positive for, uh, by a PCR test and you die within that 28 days, that's counted as a COVID death. In yes. other words, a human being has attributed an arbitrary cause of death to Absolutely. you by a government guideline. Yes, I, I would say, um, and, and in fact, had it not been for Professor Carl Hennigan pointing out the absurdity of this rule, I think it was if you died at any point after a positive test, no matter if it was six months or a year, you were still counted as a COVID death. So I think in the first, I think in the first wave, they included people who had died three months after a positive test. So you can see that once you had a test... That person, whenever they died, whether sooner or later, would always be a COVID. Right, now, now, now let's person A is admitted to hospital as an elderly patient with comorbidities and, and vulnerabilities. Now, in hospital, they get tested. Again, now, let's again. say they hadn't had COVID yet. They get tested with this PCR test in hospital. Yeah. At some point post-admission, they get tested positive for COVID, and then they die within 28 days. That would be counted as a COVID death, even though they weren't admitted for COVID. Yes. And in fact, you wouldn't have to have have any bad behavior on the part of or any inappropriate medical treatment, which I'm afraid they did. But even if you had no inappropriate medical treatment, just by following what you said, and of course, no one's going to tell us the truth. But I remember working with Claire Craig 18 months ago, and I think we concluded they were being tested at least once a week. And it could be that they were tested more often than once a week. And there was one particularly ghoulish period where, where logically, uh, Claire and I were working on this, uh, and she concluded that the only way the numbers she was being given added up was they were also being tested after their death. Seriously. Wow. Uh, Bodies in the morgue, it sounded like in order to get the numbers (sighs) they were getting, um, wow. They must have been swabbing dead bodies, sometimes perhaps more than once. It's like if we can get a positive result within 28 days after their death, we That's can call COVID that death. COVID as well. 
So now, the headlines at some point during this nightmare of the two years that you and I went through challenging, but at some point, the headlines began recognizing this. I do recall ITV began addressing some of this. Eventually, Ed Conway at Sky began addressing it. Yeah. But this question around deaths, now it's out in the, in the press that something went wrong with the way in which they were counting deaths. Yes. But let's remind everybody that at the time, to even discuss this was heresy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, 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 you're right. If you if you mention any of this stuff on on Twitter, you you would get you would probably get a suspension. Uh, so, but the but the the key thing was we were lied to about the lethality. And let me let me tell you two the, the audience two things. One is you may remember um, a falling man in Wuhan. Uh, it, it appeared on the news. The guy stumbling along and then going face down in the dust. Um, and we, it, it was implied this guy died of COVID-19. I remember myself seeing this. And I, I don't think I saw the absurdity in it because it was obviously an actor. Well, Let me just explain. If, if, if someone gets flu, um, you, you start off, you wake up one day and you don't feel great. Or you progressively notice you don't feel well during the day. And then overnight, you, you have coughing and sneezing. The next day, you feel awful. You'll stumble around, maybe have a couple of lem sips and some paracetamol. Uh, so basically, you don't go from being upright and able to walk along to a point where a moment later you, you, you're unconscious and dead on your face. That's not how flu kills anybody. It's never killed anyone like that, not in 1918 and not in COVID-19. That was theatre to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who watched it. It's like, oh, my God, there's this virus that's come out of China, maybe from an animal in the wet market, God knows what. And look, it's... This guy's stumbling along and then he's just gone face down and died, a youngish person by the look of them. So that was one piece of theatre that they used. Then they, I remember they were chasing around the city. People were wearing, you know, full chemical, biological, nuclear hazard suits. Uh, and they were spraying something from their wands all on the sides of lorries, spraying the streets. So, you know, you don't, you don't, we don't spray anything for, for viruses. We never have. We've, we haven't during this one. That was theatre too, folks. For mosquitoes, you might do that, but not for flu. What were they spraying? Yeah. Water, probably. Uh, and then here's the other thing. There was a real-life accidental experiment called the Diamond Princess. The Diamond Princess was a large cruise liner with uh, hundreds and hundreds of staff, generally younger than 60 and reasonably fit. They were working, engineering, entertainment, <laughs> catering, and so on. And then most of the passengers, most of whom were older than 60, generally you know, retirees enjoying a cruise. It turned out they became ill. Several people became ill. They started testing everyone using this very bad test, this PCR test. And it turned out after a while um, that we learned something important, which is that not everyone became infected, that not everyone became positive in this PCR test. Obviously, I don't know exactly the conditions of the test. But here's the thing. Uh, some people did die. I think it was about 1% of the relatively elderly uh, passenger manifest. And that sounds awful, 1%. But remember uh, when I said that flu kills about 0.1%, one in a thousand, almost all of whom are old, 1% of an elderly population probably would have been, in fact, it could be calculated to be somewhere between one in a thousand and three in a thousand of the whole population that would include the younger people. Not one staff member on Diamond Princess died, not one. So, you know, it's, it's exactly what you expect of a standard respiratory viral infection that overwhelms a small percentage of relatively elderly um, and sick people. 
Uh, and the reason it overwhelms them, and here's something that will completely blow your audience's mind away, is that it's very important. Um, the, the reason that they, uh, that they um, succumb and die is because their immune system is a bit tired and old. We call it immunosenescence. If their immune system has got old, it's senescent. It doesn't respond rigorously to this pathogen that, you know, you and I, I'm 62, you're probably 40 something. Um, but, you know, you would, it's unlikely either of us would die. You know, we're not, we're not fat, we're not old. Um, and our immune system, unless we've got you know, taking immunosuppressant drugs, say for cancer, we would handle it pretty well. You'd be really, really unlucky to die of any of the scores of so-called respiratory viruses. Uh, but, but this is the key thing. If you're 80 and, and already ill and you get flu or COVID, whatever it is, and die, it, it was because your immune system wasn't able to respond quickly enough to be able to uh, destroy the infected cells before too many cells became infected and your system failed. And here's the thing. If that's true, and it is, why would anyone think a vaccine would help such a person? Because all a vaccine does is attempt to give an early exposure to a bit of the pathogen, the disease-causing organism, so that your immune system can, can wake up and, and get used right. to it. And, and if your immune, immune system's response. not working in the first it, place. They don't work. Vaccines yes. don't work in elderly people. The flu vaccine that they've been handing out for free for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years in Britain, I was, I was actually shocked. I, I'd never bothered to look it up. But if anyone does, and I, I can find it, we can put it in the show notes, the Cochrane Foundation um, is, you know, worldwide foundation. It looks at all the, it tries to group together all the clinical studies. C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. Cochrane, C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E, yes. Um, and um, it turns out, that uh, some researchers looked at the, I think it was the English or English and Wales experience of the flu vaccine after 10 years since they were rolled out because they knew exactly which year it started and they knew what percentage of 60-year-olds and up uh, uh, went to their doctor and got it. And then they went back and they looked at what fraction of those 60 and up and younger people, what fraction of them were admitted to hospital for respiratory infections and what fraction ultimately went on to die uh, with, with a with a cause of respiratory failure like flu and made absolutely no difference i mean it wow. i'm depressed wow. i mean i came from this industry i didn't work in vaccinology but i was depressed because i thought these things don't work and i've worked out why they don't it doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccines don't do anything it says well, they would it, do if your immune system was working if your immune system is working you'll you yep. you will get a good boost and it probably would make you less likely to suffer symptomatic flu so instead of being off sick for a week, maybe you wouldn't even be very ill. But it's not life-saving. They don't reduce hospitalizations and they don't reduce deaths. They don't do it. Right. And now I'm going to bring you to I'm going to bring you to the COVID vaccine in yeah, a moment. But just problem. before we do, PCR tests. Yeah. Right. So we've spoken about death, we've spoken about the IFR, the 0.096. Yeah. Forgive me, I missed our zero earlier. Um, and now on the PCR tests, the cycle threshold. Yeah. Speak to us a bit about that, because at one point, the World Health Organization changed their guidelines. In fact, I remember exactly when it was. It was uh, just after uh, President Biden uh, was elected as president-elect before his inauguration, or thereabouts, 5th of Jan, roughly. The World Health Organization changed their global guidelines as to how many cycle thresholds 
uh, the PCR test should entail. So prior to that moment of Biden becoming president, no, the no. guidelines were higher, yeah. right? And then they basically lowered it and said it has to be, if my memory serves me correctly, under 35 cycles. Something like that. I mean, right. It, What's going on there? It's, yeah, I mean, it is, it's genuinely quite complicated. Um, and I, I, I don't want to mislead anybody, but essentially the PCR test is the polymerase chain reaction test. It's a chemical reaction invented by a chemist, Dr. Carrie Mullis, who won a Nobel Prize for it. And it, it's so useful, as he says, the test, if you put the right probes in, um, you can detect whether a piece of uh, uh, genetic information is present in your test or not. Um, and because of the way it works, you can you can measure either RNA or DNA because you actually convert whatever's in there to DNA anyway before you, before you measure it. Um, and the whole point of the test was not for clinical diagnosis. And Dr. Mullis repeatedly uh, to his death in 2019 said, don't use the PCR test for clinical diagnosis. Yeah, he's on video saying he's that. On video. He away. He's on video. And the reason is, this is the reason that the PCR test has a theoretical lower limit. That is, what's the smallest amount it might detect and give a positive result? The smallest amount is one one virus, you know, one piece of a virus. So if you have one piece of the thing you're looking for, and basically you, if the thing you're looking for, you decide what to look for and you design a probe that will be complementary to it, that would basically like a north magnet and a south magnet, they'll stick together and it's more specific than that. Um, and then basically every time you run a cycle of this polymerase chain reaction, like cranking a handle, it gets hot and cold, hot and cold, and it goes through a, basically a doubling Every cycle is a doubling. So it's like binary, one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. So if you run 40 cycles, theoretically, you're multiplying whatever was in there by one trillion fold, a trillion. That's a, I think that's a million, is that a million, 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 whatever, it's 10 to the 12. It's an enormous number of zeros. So basically, if there's an, an infinitesimally tiny amount of, a piece of a virus or the sequence you allege is a virus in the sample, and then you run it 40 cycles, uh, you, you could get a positive result, even though there's only one piece of one virus, not enough to make you ill, not enough to make you infectious. And that's why Dr. Mollis said, you can detect almost anything in anybody if you do it well enough. That's why he, that's what it, that's what he was saying. It doesn't mean you're sick and it doesn't mean you're infectious. That's mm. the problem, Majid, with, with this. So, as so the a more times you method. go through that cycle, the more yeah. times you magnify that particle that's in there, yeah. the more likely you are to get a positive test. And uh, hence the yes. World Health Organization's reduction yes. of their Make cycle threshold guidelines when Biden became president yeah. means that you'd get less positive test results. Yes. Yeah, you would get... So, I, the, so the virus would, would look worse under Trump. Yeah. You Basically, it would be at least tenfold less. So if you drop five wow. cycles, that's two, four, eight, 16, 32. So you, you might drop between, say, 16 and 32 fold. Now, that's an enormous number. Instead of getting a thousand, quotes, cases, you might drop that down to 100 or even 30, just, just by changing the test. Now, I'm, I, think it's, I do think it's more complicated than that. And I, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, uh, get in, in a punch up with someone who's, who, who, for whom this is their... Uh, meat and drink, because I do think, I think done very well, PCR can have some place in clinical diagnostics. I, I personally would start with the sick person, and then I would use small numbers of cycles. So if it went positive after a very small number, like five or 10, 
uh, and you were using multiple probes. So you had to get all three of the probes, the, the sort of top bit, the middle bit, and the end bit, all of them had to be positive, to show the intact virus was present and, and lit up after a small number of cycles. I think that's pretty good evidence. You probably have larger amounts of the virus and your symptoms being consistent with that infection. Yeah, I'd say that's as good as you're going to get. Most of the time, though, you don't need to bother with the diagnosis because... Well, let's draw, let's draw in the dots here. If you could have asymptomatic COVID, in other words, no symptoms, and a PCR test that you're testing beyond the 35 or whatever number that is, cycle threshold, that can detect anything yeah. in an asymptomatic person. Yeah. And the thing <laughs> is that every test, I don't care what they say, every test will produce false results. So, And there are two types. Uh, you get a positive result when nothing was there. That's a false positive. You can get a negative result when something was there. That's a false negative. How can that happen? In the case of the false positive, sometimes the probes, believe it or not, the thing that you put in to try and fish out what you're looking for, I think it, they can do what's called self-annealing. They stick to themselves to some level, small level. So say that happens, and then you multiply it a trillion times. You can get a false positive even though there was just water in there. That doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And, there, and then you can also get false positives because your probe sticks to something that isn't the virus, but looks slightly like the virus. So it sticks just well enough to start the amplification. And then you multiply it by a trillion again. Oh, that tube's positive. So, that, that's, so that's why you have to look very carefully at specificity and sensitivity. And I don't care how many times people tell me, no, you're wrong. We've checked and the false positive rate is 0.000%. Bullshit. Every time you run this technique, you need to determine what the false positive rate was in your hands that day. Because all sorts of things can affect it. If you change you the operator, daily. if you change you the operator, daily, saying, right. you've got, you, you should run it again. And so when they were doing mass scale tests at, um, uh, you know, the so-called, was it super labs? Something like super labs. I can't remember the name. Anyway, lighthouse labs, I think was uh, mm. a bit, bit funny. Yeah. So once you change the operators and now you were getting, you know, um, postgraduate students had never worked in a lab before and they were doing three shift working. You know, if you haven't done this before, you need to determine false positive rate again with those reagents in that lab with those people on that shift. And they never, they've never done it. So that this is, this is where I think I will agree with anyone who likes or hates PCR. Go and find the false positive data operationally when they were doing runs. Never released in any country ever. And that tells you it's a fraud because they've never released that data. They've never, no, as far as I can tell, no country at any point during the uh, COVID crisis for two years has ever released the operational false positive rate from the batches where they were telling you how many cases were this day in Arizona or how many cases in London. They, they ne okay, so you got like 1% of your tests were positive. What fraction were false positives? It's not difficult. It's not bloody difficult. Run you know, 5% of the of the clinical tests, throw them in as known negatives, known negatives, blinded. Don't let the operators know which ones are known negatives. It's called, that's what you do. This is why you do placebo-controlled trials. You throw in tests that look just like clinical samples, but you, you know, because you're the tester, you're testing the system, testing the test. You know that these 10 barcodes have no virus in them. You just took them out of the packet, and you didn't didn't swab anybody. You wrote the barcode down, and then you put it through the system. How? What fraction of those come back positive? 
See, you, you, and they never, they never tell you. And, and I know the answer for a similar tests like this. Government scientists wrote a memo to Sage, the so-called Sage memo. Um, they wrote and they said, we've looked as skilled biomedical researchers working for the government. We've looked and we can find no evidence of operational false positive rate determination for this PCR test. Um, we have found, however, operational false positive rates for similar tests against different viruses, and they range from 0.8 to 2.6. So it's like low single percent. Uh, it's of the of the ultra, uh, whatever um, maximum importance that this be determined before this test goes to large scale public use. Uh, that uh, it was I think it was Kay Barker and somebody else, and they and it was sent to Sage and is referred to in the Sage minutes as Sage paper. So government scientists were saying what I'm saying way back in June 20th. I think it was the 3rd or 4th of June 2020. And they were saying, look, no operational false positive rate. It's going to be 0.8 to 2 point something based on seven other tests we have done, the government, uh, in the past. And it must be determined with urgency and then continuously thereafter in order not to overestimate the number of cases. They even wrote why it's important to know the false positive rate. Never done. Never done. Um, that's one of the things I now, now, specifically this, called this, out. This, My former oppo, bit. Patrick Balance, I used to work with him briefly. Oh, you met him. Oh, yeah. We were both <laughs> welcome at the same well, time. Gonna, about yeah, 19, about 1990, he? he was playing Pat Balance. He, he got his MD and he was working through a two-year accelerated PhD. And we, always, we all thought he'll end up running a drug company, which he did. It's quite interesting that, that we, we guessed that would be his future. Um, basically, he became research director's pet. So he got all the most interesting projects. And within two years, he had loads of papers, got his PhD and buggered off and ended up running Glaxo's research division for a few years. Now, I want to bring you on this on this. note. I want to bring you because we've been speaking for an hour. It felt like it flew by. We've been speaking for an hour. Thank you for your time. Yeah. I want to bring you to the meat yeah. of the subject, because this is really where you uh, deserve to be heard and, and have been stigmatized and sidelined. 17 years at Pfizer, yeah. head, chief scientist globally on respiratory, respiratory illnesses. Respiratory illnesses was your expertise yes. at Pfizer, and you're their chief scientist globally on yes. that topic. You're saying that it was obvious to you from your background experience, yes. academic qualifications, expertise, it was obvious to you that these vaccines didn't work and won't work and do not work. Now, what I'd like you to do is give you the stage now, because this is really, I think, probably why our audience would tune into you because of your, of your Pfizer background. Pfizer data is being released as we speak, and only because a, a court ordered them to release this data. They tried to hold it back for 75 years. What we have found is that there were 1,200 deaths within the first three months of their trials. They tried to withhold that information from the public. A judge had to order that to be uh, released. You're going beyond the side effects. You're saying, yes, side effects are bad, but you're saying the damn thing doesn't work in the first place. So yeah. stage is yours, uh, Mark. Yeah, Tell us why certainly. you say Well, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus on um, what I call design errors. Did, 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 I remember I talked about mechanisms of toxicity and then yeah. my decades of drug discovery experience where you would work with what we call a medicinal chemist to try and design molecules that would interact with the target to bring about a benefit to a patient as a medicine and not bring about toxic side effects. And remember, I had this training in mechanistic toxicity. So you're always trying to, uh, in fact, it was said a long time ago that the dose makes the poison. 
almost everything we knew from ancient Greeks that uh, you know things that you could derive from plants if you used them in the right dose could produce you know benefits relieving pain making helping people sleep removing inflammation but if you had the wrong dose it could poison you same thing and so it's a matter of getting the right amount of, of interaction with the target to help you and and not interacting with a target that will hurt you so i know a lot about drug design mechanisms of toxicity so i'm just going to point out a few things that i think people will get the aha but this was obvious to me so if you want to design a vaccine um then and you're going to do it I wouldn't do it in this way at all. There are, there are no gene-based vaccines on the market for very good reasons, uh, and that's one of the problems. But let's say you could like pull it, pull it apart, you could pull the spike off, you could pull the, the ball in the middle of this virus. Which bit would you give to people? Well, you don't need to answer it, but what you would do is ask, what's the toxicity of the bit I'm going to give to a person? So if I told you that the spike protein, like a floating landmine, a sea mine in the sea with the spike sticking out, if I told you that we've known for more than a decade that the spike bits from related viruses had unwanted biology that could cause blood to coagulate, that could activate platelets and make blood clot, that's true. If you knew those things, you'd think, well, probably a bad idea then to give them the spike to train on. Let's give them the nucleo, let's give them the coating around the nucleus or something, or the capsid, you know, the cap on the end of the protein. So they, the fact that they chose spike protein, a gene for spike protein, make your body become a manufacturing center briefly to make that virus spike protein. That's the first mistake. Because yeah, you're, you're, they, you're saying we've known for, for years oh, yeah. that spike protein causes blood clots. Yeah. Which, by the way, now that's out there, right? So we know that yes. um, Johnson & Johnson, at Moderna, yes. uh, AstraZeneca in particular, now in Britain you, under 40, now you so get why I was so, blood clots. Now you can get why I was so frantic in December 2020. I remember. A, with a public health I was trying to get doctor. you on my previous gig, my yeah. previous show, and there were pushback. People thought you were a conspiracy Exactly. Theorist. So with, well, there was a public health doctor that is a public health doctor in Germany, Dr. Wolfgang Vodarg. You might want to try yeah. and interview him. W-O-D-A-R-G. Uh, and he right. was public health doctor and uh, a, a politician during the swine flu pandemic in 2009. And some some very similar things that happened in COVID were happening in 2009. It's a very interesting experience. Uh, he and I think 2009 was the final dress rehearsal for COVID. Mm. They, they misused PCR. They overdiagnosed cases. They twisted the arms of governments all around the world to pay for billions of dollars worth of uh, vaccines and not very good antivirals. And then they all ran off. Uh, and Vodard was the one that managed to point out in the second season that it was a false positive pseudo epidemic. It was all bad PCR testing. And as soon as they fixed the PCR, it all went away. All went away. So, so you're saying we knew this spike protein would cause blood clots. You're yeah. trying to raise the alarm. Yeah. Uh, pe people aren't listening. Nevertheless, they roll out these vaccines they to did. focus on. So, that, so on that, was the, spike that was the first mistake. That so they, right. I, I mean, they may have had a good counter argument, but no one's contacted me to say I wish you wouldn't keep bad mouthing them. Here was the good reason. Here was the rational reason why, despite these concerns, we picked spike protein. Maybe it's the most immunogenic part, the bit that makes your immune system wake up. Okay, let's hear yeah. that counter-argument. I haven't heard it. And by the way, the human body makes its best immune responses after infection to bits other than the spike protein. About 90% of the immune response to this COVID are to bits of the virus that are not the spike protein. 
So, so I think I am right that that was not the best bit to give because it's not the thing your body likes to respond to. It's and, and there's another there's a there's a reason. So the first thing is you don't give you don't give um, as the vaccine something that's toxic in its own right because you're going to get side effects. The second thing you you choose is you try and pick something that's um, genetically the most stable. We you know we hear about uh, variants that the when replicating, the virus makes typographical mistakes. It does. It corrects most of them. It does make small typos. And so what you should do is pick the bit of the virus that's genetically most stable. Now, I don't know that we knew it at the beginning, but it's certainly true now that the thing that that undergoes variation most quickly is the spike protein. Um, you know, that's a shame. So now, now you've picked something that's going to rapidly go out of focus. You know, it's rapidly... Uh, evolved to a different variant and your vaccine won't work anymore. But and then but here's something else they definitely did know. You would pick a part of the virus that is, this is important, most different from humans. Uh, so viruses and humans and fungi and bacteria are all living organisms. They have some relationships because we all probably originated from the same, you know, instantiation of life, you know, however that happened. And then there's been evolution ever since. And so the similarities and differences, what you do is you, you can run searches and you can find a bit of the virus that's most virusy and most dissimilar from anything else that's in your body. And if you do that, you don't pick spike protein. Spike protein is slightly similar to lots of bits of human. Not very, slightly similar to lots of bits of human. Guess what happens if you do that? You make an immune response to bits of protein that look a bit like you. And sometimes you end up with a spillover. That's called an autoimmune response. So just to yeah. say again, you deselect things that are toxic in their own right. You pick things that are genetically stable and you pick things that are most different from humans. All three of those, in the words of patents, they teach away. They would teach you away from picking spike protein. But guess what? Moderna picks spike protein. Oh, and so does Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. So I put it to you, colleagues, any scientists out there or just logical people, how the hell would they pick? No team I was ever part of would ever have picked bloody spike protein for this virus, this vaccine. And you know what? If we, if we did and we had competing groups, we would not all four of us make mistake. The same mistake is not possible. Good drug discoverers. It's not a mistake. Mike, can you not a that's mistake. not a mistake then? So I believe it's collusion yeah. and malfeasance. They did it on purpose, knowing it would hurt you. Now, I'll get to why somebody would want to hurt hurt you in a moment, but yeah. sticking with the vaccines. Yeah. So you're saying the spike protein was a wrong thing to focus on in the first place. Beyond that, though, infection and transmission. Yeah. You're saying these things in the... I've got some notes here that you sent me kindly. You put vaccines in quotation marks. Is that because you're saying that they, they, the, traditionally this is not what a vaccine was? Yes. That they, there's, I don't, I must say, I don't see anything about, I don't, I wouldn't have designed it like this, but I, yeah. I don't understand why it doesn't produce uh, some benefits, although I can explain some of it. But when you observe its behavior, you observe the, uh, the, the outcome of a group that's been vaccinated or given this stuff and a group that hasn't, you don't find reduced in rate of infection. They don't stop you becoming infected, which is pretty piss poor, frankly. They don't affect the peak levels of virus in your airway. So if you find people who are symptomatic, who weren't vaccinated and symptomatic who were vaccinated, um, they have to, and then you swap them and then put them in PCR and just turn the handle gently until it 
initially lights up, you find that they have the same apparent viral load. Now, this is something very important. So it doesn't affect infection. The virus can land in you and begin to multiply. And it doesn't change the peak levels. I think it means it does not affect viral replication in your lung either. Doesn't, so it doesn't affect infection, replication, uh, or, or in fact, whether you become ill or die. And in fact, it makes them slightly more, you're slightly more likely to die if you have the vaccine. So the bloody thing, it doesn't work. Why it doesn't wait, work wait, exactly. Wait, that, that, so you just made a bold state. So you're slightly more likely to die. Is that just from the stats you've seen? Just yeah, from the, from the, yes, there's nothing, there's not, the, the design, uh, the design would not have helped. What I would predict yeah. from what I've said about the design is that it would be harmful and more harmful than it needed to be. So if you if they'd picked a similar size bit of viral protein from the coating or the nuclear protein, I think you would have had a much better tolerated material. Uh, whether it would be more effective, I couldn't say, probably. But here's the reason why it failed. Um, it's obvious when, you, when I say it, it's almost so embarrassing, it took me ages to see it. How did they administer these vaccines? In a syringe, in a needle, in your muscle, and inject it. How do you get infected with a respiratory virus? You breathe it in. It lands on the on the inside of your mucosal surface, in your nose, your larynx, or, or lung. Technically, that's outside of you. Topologically, it's outside of you. Now, you can reach it with a swab. It's technically outside. It's like a folded-in part of your outside. But when you give the vaccine, you've put it essentially into the blood supply or into the lymph supply. You've certainly gone through all the barriers and injected it into the body. But here's the thing. We do know that these vaccines lead to antibodies. You can find anti-spike protein antibodies circulating around in the blood. Big an Antibodies are big molecules. They're bloody great molecules. They do not leave your blood vessels. They circulate around continuously in the blood. They do not leave your blood vessels. They're too big to get through the cell cell, cell gaps. So how would they ever be in the airway? And the answer is, my, they're not. They're not in the airway. They, they could never stop infection because the immune response they generate, antibodies that circulate, never get to be f outward facing where the virus is coming in. So they never could have affected infection at all. And that's why you sometimes see some vaccines. I think children are now given a nasal vaccine at school for flu in the winter. I, I haven't looked at the data, but I think I quite like the sound of that. If you can give a, if you can give a heat killed preparation that you argue will convey that could convey the disease, but not actually make you very ill. And if you sniff it in the nose, now your body thinks, okay, I've got a mucosal insult and I'm going to produce a, mu a mucosal immune response to that. Now that would protect you. That will protect you. But yeah. so, so an injected, and of course, that's why flu, that's another reason why flu vaccines don't work. They're injected. And you're not, that is not how your body is. So, so, so if we've come to you, you, somebody clearly all over this topic, know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're saying this doesn't work. No, neither doesn't to stop work. infection, nor to reduce the viral load, no. nor to stop transmission. No. And logically, you're stating that the spike protein can't even get to the outside layer. The, the, where, anti, where, where yeah, the, the antibodies to the spike the protein to the don't spike protein. get to the place yeah. in the lung tissue. Well, what we do know is that, is that T cells, which for a long time was considered a right-wing plot, uh, T, T cells are, are what most yes. immunologists would recognize. They're basically white blood cells, specialized white yeah. blood cells. They can move out of the blood and they migrate into tissue and they will, they will clear the infection from an infected tissue. And that is ultimately 
uh, ultimately what happens. Uh, but certainly the vaccines could, could never have stopped infection and, and they just don't work. They don't, based on the data, they don't work very well to prevent infection, replication, transmission, or, or make, or even, uh, illness and, and death. Uh, and I pointed out many ways in which they, they are toxic to you. What would you expect from something that can cause blood clots if you inf- inject it? But here's the why I would never use Mr. Uh, Professor Bill Gates, who's been telling us, you know, there'll be pandemic two. I call this pandemic one. Basically, he says, if there's another new viral threat, don't worry, we'll have these uh, mRNA vaccines more quickly. It's really important that you listen to me here. That if there's another respiratory virus, you must know this time that whatever, however they design the damn vaccine is the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer for loads of reasons. One is you'll generate an immune response in your blood that cannot possibly affect infection. It doesn't matter what it is. It won't affect infection. Uh, secondly, if you if you design it using spike protein you know, from some other virus, uh, then if it has that same property of, of causing toxicity, it will cause toxicity because when you inject these gene-based vaccines, it's like launching a go-kart that has an accelerator, no steering wheel, and no brakes. Let me just expand a little bit. Wow. So you've got your foot down, you've put a brick on the throttle of this go-kart, and let it go into your body. It's buzzing around. So I'm saying there's nothing in the design of these vaccines that limits where they go. Some of it will go into your brain, the back of your eyes, your, your ovaries or testes, your blood vessels or your heart. It won't just go to the lymph nodes under your arm and in your groin and create an immune response. It will chill. It will do that, but it'll go everywhere. Someone's left a brick on the throttle of this go-kart. There's nothing in the design that limits where they distribute to or, or, or how long they go on for. So some people, by luck, because you get a normal distribution of, or maybe a skewed distribution, some people will take a lot of this stuff up the, the DNA and express it well for a long time in a dangerous area. And I think that's why some people will just die of a brain blood clot. In other people, it will distribute to a different part of your body, be taken up less well, produce less amount for a shorter time. And those people will be going, I don't know what you're complaining about. You haven't had any side effects. And I would predict that. I would predict that. But the, what you will have is huge diversity from dead to nothing at all but for no benefits because they're the wrong design. And then I would also say the time it would take to get a safety database of sufficient length of time, like a year's worth of safety after dosing. Say you give it to your 16-year-old. Don't you want a year's worth of safety to know that it's not going to harm him or her? Five years, maybe? You're going to get three months next time or two months. We got two months of safety data. And then they sprayed it at billions of people. That is reckless. I knew it was reckless. It's still reckless. You can't develop rapid vaccines and then give them to billions of people because you'll never have enough safety data to allow you to know whether that was a good bet or not. And without that data, it's reckless. Don't do it. Now, now this is where on that point, we want to bring, because it's hard, nobody can really, sane person can really argue with you on the science. No. Uh, but let's bring you to the recklessness, because now what you've done is you, 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 you make this case and then you cross to where I'm comfortable with, which is what's really going on. 
And yeah. you, you take the view that because the science here is so clear yeah. and there's no excuse because you've communicated it to a point where you're being smeared in public for doing so, yes. you take the view that they knew all along this stuff didn't work and they did it on purpose. Yes. I, let me just say a few things. Um, the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the NPIs, that is, they're not drugs or vaccines, but they're things they, they require you to do or voluntarily to do like a mask uh, or a lockdown business closures hand washing uh, mass testing of the population border closures or restrictions all of those are called non-pharmaceutical interventions because they're definitely interventions and they don't involve drugs uh, it turns out that the the world health organization or at least scientists working at the world health organization in the second half of 2019 several of them i think it was like six or eight scientists it went through all of the published literature to, to study every one of those things, hand-washing, masks, lockdowns, border closures, and so on. And the sad conclusion, folks, uh, is that all of the published learning journals showed that none of those things make a dicky bird's bit of difference to the spread of respiratory viruses wherever they studied them. This was like work over 20, 30 years. You can go and find that paper. It's a big WHO paper. It's over 100 pages long. And it was sent to the chief medical officers of every one of the 180-something member states of the WHO at the end of 2019. So what I'm saying is the people in SAGE like Valance and Witty and others, the modelers like Ferguson, they, if they didn't know, then they were incompetent. But the WHO sent the largest report ever on NPIs, masking, lockdowns, and so on. And they said, uh, they don't work, none of them. There's no strong evidence that any of them are beneficial. Of course, many of them have really serious side effects on the economy, psychology, social relationships, and so on. So, but they knew at the end of 2019 that they didn't work, as judged by reviewers at the WHO. But three months later, at the end, March 23rd, I think it was, I must ask you to stay at home. You know, basically... Less than three months after that report, end of the year, so less than three months into the following year, um, the, all the countries of Europe, as far as I can tell, all locked down all at the same time. They all did, they all did about six stupid things that the WHO would advise them a few months ago did not work. Now, that's not a mistake. It isn't, is it? It's, some people said, oh, they panicked. They panicked and they went for everything. Oh, they saw Italy locking down. They thought they'd follow. It's like, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Clever public health officials knew perfectly well those things didn't work. So they were shut down. And every country except Sweden followed suit to some extent or other. And my, my wife Just to stop you there, just to sort that. So that was the epidemiologist in Sweden, Anders Tegnell. Anders was Tegnell, the only one yes. who bucked that trend. Yes. And your, your argument is that these are smart civil servants across Western liberal democracies. Yes in the synchronicity with which they all did the same mistake at the same time in multiple countries. It was deliberate. Points, yeah, points to some form of coordination, yes. especially because Anders Tegnell's standing there saying this is all wrong. Exactly. Absolutely. So here's the thing. Uh, I think it's the strongest evidence of supranational coordination, something happening above the level of country. Now, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was WHO that gave them all a call and said you must, you must, all, you must all lock down. Uh, it was at the international health regulations where they made to do something, however absurd. Well, even if that was true, they should have said, we're following the IHR, but we've recommended against it because these things don't work. So be a bit careful. But no, no, um, they, they, 
more or less did the same sort of things. Here's the thing. We had lockdown in the spring of 2020 in Britain. I can tell you because I read them, by June or July, there were several dozen papers in the peer-reviewed journals, several dozen papers examining the effects of lockdown in lots of different countries, some towns in America, some countries in Europe, nothing. It made no difference. So I knew by June, and every scientist who looked at the peer-reviewed journals or some things that were preprints in the preprint servers, uh, I, I knew they didn't work. Uh, I had an instinct that they wouldn't work. And I have to say it took me, I'm embarrassed to say it took me months to realize why they don't, why lockdown doesn't work. Um, so, and a lot of people would criticize me and say, you know, Mike's taken leave of his senses. This is a disease that's passed from human to human. Obviously, if you lock down, you'll have fewer interactions and it must slow it down. And that sounds perfectly logical, but it's wrong. They've categorized, they've got, they've, cate- they've made a category error in describing how infection occurs. It doesn't occur between human to humans. It occurs between symptomatic humans and susceptible humans, because that's the only time transmission occurs. If you and I had just met, Majid, in in April, if you were free of symptoms and I was free of symptoms, we could give each other a hug, go and have a coffee. I would not have caught it from you or you from me because you don't have it. So so that's why lockdown doesn't do anything. It's really And and, and this point on symptomatic... Obviously, they're going to stay at home. You're more likely to yes. catch it in an enclosed environment exactly. with somebody who has symptoms so, because you're in a closed room with and them. And the people out, the people, it, remember last time, folks, the last time we've had flu or even a bad cold, um, the sicker you are, the, the more infectious you are, but the less likely to be out. You, you might say you've got to go and fill your car up with petrol because you know you're going tomorrow or something like that. You stagger out. People will avoid you. You know, people detect other people representing a, th- a respiratory threat to them because it's one of the things that could have killed you as a caveman 60,000 years ago. Uh, so you, you observe people. And if they look sick as they come towards you on the pavement, you give them like more than two meters. So the chances that you would interact with a symptomatic person, even if they were out, is low because you'd see them and move around. But mostly the people you would interact with in the shops, at work, uh, you know, uh, in a petrol station, they're not symptomatic. If they're not symptomatic, they can't infect you, almost never. And so when you shut down those non-transmission events, that's called lockdown, nothing happens. The infection carries on mostly between infected people and a susceptible person in an enclosed space, a hospital, a waiting room, right. a ward, old my- people's home, you know, I want to move you then to, to, to because we're wrapping up and we've been uh, it's been fantastic by the way we've speaking for an hour and a half thank you for your time pleasure um you yeah, you've, who, you've who gone did this through, and why yeah so you've gone through the fact that these in your view as somebody that basically was the top guy in Pfizer chief scientist around the world on this very topic respiratory illnesses yeah. and medicine right yeah. you've said that these vaccines don't work don't stop infection don't stop viral load reduce viral load and don't stop transmission and are toxic they knew and our and, toxic, and, our and toxic. they knew they weren't working. Now, we've got two options ahead of us. Because of that synchronicity we touched on earlier, in terms of how many countries did the same wrong thing at the same time, apart from Anders Tegnell, right? Either, as you and I have alleged publicly, there's some form of supranational force or pressure on yeah. these countries, yeah? And there are certain characters who are openly boasting about having exerted such a supranational pressure, such as, for example, Klaus Schwab saying that his young global leaders have infiltrated the the governments around the world. He said over half of Canada's cabinet 
are members of his network. He mentioned yes. Macron. You know, he mentioned the usual suspects. Now, either that's going on. There's some form of supranational pressure on governments to toe the line and sell the pharmaceutical, do the pharmaceutical's bidding, or, or the other um, explanation is that the top scientists in all of these countries are all incompetent. Yeah. Now, actually, for me, the former sounds more believable than the latter. Yes. To think that every one of them in every country, by coincidence, yes. was incompetent mm. doesn't really make sense to me. What does make sense is that there were political pressure because we know multiple times through history, not least the invasion of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, Absolutely. non-existing weapons of mass destruction. Yes, I remember. We know where political pressure has led to experts in their field presenting misleading or false evidence that has later been discovered to have been a lie. Scientists have turned up dead like Dr. Kelly, uh, and yet we've invaded an entire country, which is an incredibly serious thing to do. But we did it on a false premise. For me, what I have experience in, what I have evidence for, is that these sorts of lies can affect entire countries and the decisions entire countries make. And it's more likely that that kind of political pressure was deployed than to say every single scientist in every one of these countries made the very same mistake based on the very same incompetence and the same knowledge gap. That's a bit weird. Exactly. I, I think, I think yes, when we look at it, when we look at the second possibility that all the scientists were, you know, were incompetent uh, or, or, or ignorant or whatever, it, that, just, that doesn't seem at all likely. Uh, maybe some countries have better trained public health people. So I, I do think Sweden did appoint uh, people. I think a Johan, Professor Johan Giesecker had been Sweden's predecessor as their public health czar. And he had selected Anders Tegnell and trained him. So they, there's two generations of people who knew what they were doing. They're trained as public health doctors. They understood epidemiology, virology, and so on. Uh, and it may be other countries that just like dropped someone in who didn't have the right training. But even so, the chance that they would they would all do the same things that since soon you only have to begin to look at, you know, what would be the effects of lockdown? You think, well, it's going to be pretty bad on the economy and people's psychology. And what's the what's the evidence that it'll work? It's like there isn't any. The good news, Mike, is that I so I don't have the scientific background you have, but I've been calling, as you know, this stuff out. as well. The good news is that on all of these measures, the NPIs, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, now the evidence is all out. Lockdowns, we know from the data now, we know they cause more harm than good. We know the vaccines didn't stop infection or transmission. Mm. We know that masks didn't have the efficacy we were, we were told uh, yeah. that they would. So we've got all of the evidence out here, right? So yeah. now we're in a stronger position to speak, whereas people may not have believed you before. I think the public mood is beginning to turn on this as well. So uh, as a last question for you, then just summarize, because I think you're going to find after, especially if they've sat through an hour and a half listening to you on this, they're going to be a bit more receptive to what you think is going on. They know what I think is going on because they heard me say it on this show multiple times. What do you think is going on, Mike? Yeah, okay, what do I think is going on? Well, yes, because I recognize that all pretty much all the countries at the same time did impose this series of measures that made no sense and I have enough respect for my colleagues in public health uh, to believe that they 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 didn't think this would work. They they were doing it because there was pressure to do it. Now I've no idea where the pressure was. There was there pressure from you know the relevant minister in each of those countries that would call up their chief scientific advisor or the chair of their sage, whatever that was. But either way, uh, they did not they did not oppose what was happening. That's the that's the most disappointing and frightening thing that uh, 
Um, why, why none of the scientists from Germany, Holland, Belgium, France, Spain, Portugal, Britain, why none of them uh, said, you know, this is absurd. I'm not doing this. Um, and if you're going to do it, I'm resigning and then I shall go to the media. Um, either that didn't happen or they tried to try this and BBC and Sky and ITV said, well, we're not interviewing you. That's possible. Um, so, but, so yes, but I come to, I come to the, con- the same conclusion that you do, you do that there is a supranational agreement or pressure to do it. I don't know whether that pressure was instantiated in spring of 2020 or whether they'd already agreed to do it a few months ago. But either way, nobody spoke up. And as far as I know, nobody resigned, even though what was being imposed on all of those countries was, was I knew it was ineffective and would damage their economies. That's the kindest thing you can possibly say. Well, Dr. Mike Eden, uh, 12 years at Pfizer, former vice president, chief science officer. Thank you very much for joining us. If there's anybody that we wanted to speak to on this topic, it was you. And we look forward to speaking to you again. It's been yeah, an absolute pleasure. We will pleasure. do that. Thank you very much, Majid. Cheerio. Thank you, Mike. Fascinating. I'm sure you'd agree. Now, look, you may still remain skeptical of some of what you just heard there. And you know what? That's your right. But who better to speak to and listen to, at least while you're processing that skepticism, than a man like Mike Eden, who, as you've just heard, spent years leading Pfizer's efforts globally on the very subject we're speaking of, respiratory illnesses. Let's not forget, COVID is a respiratory illness. The vaccine will be sold, a vaccine primarily through the pharmaceutical company Pfizer, this man was the man responsible at that company for addressing this very topic. So there wouldn't be anyone else uh, more well-positioned than him to raise this skepticism for us. And you may not be fully convinced yet, but I think actually the evidence is there. But even if you're not, there's one thing that remains. Don't just listen to one man. Look to the data for yourselves. And as you've heard, Pfizer's data that they tried to hide from you for 75 years has now been ordered by a judge that it has to be released a lot faster than that. And this data will start trickling out. Already we know that in the first three months of their trial, over 1,200 people somehow died as they were rolling out their vaccine. We don't know why that happened. We do know there's a correlation, but more and more data is gonna start being drip fed to us. And so the only thing I think from this episode that you should go away with, not just with the interest with which we listen to people like Mike Eden and take seriously what he says, but most importantly, Keep an open mind and keep watching for that data as it comes out. Because I'm of the view that as it comes out, more and more of these crimes will be revealed.